You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Oneofus.net has been your one-stop shop for all things geek for years. But there's a side to them many of you have never heard. The subscription side. Subscribe and listen to great podcasts like The Breakfast Pub, The Original Gentleman, and the Watch a Movie With Us series. Head on over to oneofus.net and don't forget your towel. Marco, do you hear that on the roof? I, I think it might be Santa. Okay, hold on. Let me get the shotgun. No, don't get the you, shotgun. You it's can't Santa. Be sh- you don't know. I, you, it but, could be any dude in a hat. But that, well, okay, that that is true, technically. But Look, why would I some have a other... chubby bearded guy lives down my block? I see him walking around in the middle of the night. No, I'm getting prepared. <laughs> hold on a second. Okay, I've got it. I've got it loaded. Okay, just do me a favor and take your finger off the trigger, okay? Right, fair enough. Like, if it's Santa, I don't want to kill Santa. Wait, how do we prove he's Santa? Well, it should be self-evident, right? Dude, I see that guy at, outside of every Goodwill. Come on. All right, let me let me let me open the door and right. Santa. Just hello, hello. What's the gun for? <laughs> Sorry, that was me doing a bad Santa. I yeah. actually scared the poor man away. You have ruined right this the... entire sketch, Marco, by I'm your poor sorry. Santa impression. What are we going to do now? The whole point of the cold open is ruined. Well, the whole point of the cold opening is that it's cold, and it is kind of cold outside. It's it is kind of cold outside. You know, I, think I was going to ask you about your Thanksgiving, because I haven't seen you since Thanksgiving. Well, we I... just shifted right into Christmas. Drank a lot of beer. All right. Well, there you go. What do you... What, and now where you ask me what I'm going to do for Christmas? Uh, now, other than shooting strangers who look like Santa, what are you going to do for Christmas? I'm going to drink a lot of beer. Let's drink some beer. Marco this week. Hey, Marco, how's it going? Hello, Chris. How are you, sir? I'm quite fine. That's great. And we have so many movies and TV shows to talk about this oh, week. It's God. just ridiculous. But let me start off by inviting people to please. Your Christmas shopping is coming up. This is a vital time of year for oneofus.net because we know you're doing a lot of your shopping on Amazon. Yeah. And if you look down our page, you click on the the images of the movies or TV shows we're talking about. It'll bring you to Amazon.com. If you buy that movie or TV show, or in fact, if you buy anything on Amazon, mm-hmm. as long as you start from one of our links, we get a healthy kickback. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, literally, it's costing you nothing except to remember to do your Amazon shopping starting from one of our links. You're going to buy stuff for your friends and family on Amazon anyway, so you might as well go through our site first. Yeah, that's really helpful. The other thing, of course, is becoming a subscriber is the number one way you keep this site going and on the air with... Always working on new shows, new ideas. In fact, we just started doing video production for stuff. If you look, the latest episode of The Original Gentleman is free for everyone to both listen to and watch the video version of that is up right now. So please. Finally proving that we do have a basis <coughs> for radio. <laughs> yeah, right? Well, you always suspected it, but now you have video proof. My face is fine. It was my stomach I was worried about. <laughs> We're just tight shots, just close ups. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, we don't actually have a cameraman. They're just kind of set, so. Yeah, the Close cameraman don't work adds as well. 15 pounds. Yes, he does. The cameraman is, uh, yeah. The cameraman could lose a few pounds, too. Oh, are you talking about Monkey? Oh, yes. 
He's uh, he's really heavy. You're looking well and fit, sir. I'm going to move you off my lap. <laughs> yeah, we have cats goddamn everywhere, Attack as per cats. usual. Well, anyway, let's do what we do and go on to the reviews. Oh, we have so many. We have a lot of them. And just in time for the Christmas season, we got a bunch of kid movies, too. Yeah, I mean, it is pretty typical. They try and time these things so that kids can, you know, you got stuff to give to your kids in Christmas, all the new movies they're excited about seeing. And one of them, of course, is Pixar, Finding Dory. They're kind of workman-like sequel to Finding Nemo. Uh, yes. It was a sort of unnecessary sequel, but, you know, fun for what it is. There's some good elements to this movie, and I had a good time watching it. I did see it at the theater, actually, and really, visually, this is a beautiful feast. I mean, you can't go wrong with Pixar, especially under the sea. And Chris is running off, but don't worry about him. If Santa fires at him, I will protect him. In the meanwhile, I'm going to talk about Finding Dory. Now, for those of you who remember, Dory is uh, played by the wonderful uh, Ellen DeGeneres as the absent-minded Dory. And, you know, she is finally just remembered, hey, I have parents. I should go look for them. <laughs> you know, answering that question that none of you were asking. But apparently, Pixar decided we need to get some closure on this. And... <laughs> You know, I have to say, without giving too much about the movie away, I mean, you, if you've probably already seen it, for me, watching a rewatching a movie like this is to really capture the details, is to go back and see the things I wasn't paid attention to mm -hmm. when I saw it the first time. And Pixar, as always, has packed the screen with so many little gags, so many great visuals. You know, there's a bunch of really cute little featurettes, which are helpful. They're nice. Uh, me kind of loving the behind-the-scenes details. I wish these were meatier, because uh, this movie is a technical and visual triumph. Uh, so I would have liked to have gotten a little bit more adult fare, if you will, in terms of the, the special features. But they're pitched towards kids, and they're going to get a really good t entertainment value out of it. Uh, like, not even realizing how difficult it was to animate an octopus. Uh, yeah, which apparently know, was incredibly complicated. It was extraordinarily complicated. And uh, if you listen to the commentary, which I did, you know, one thing that had never really crossed my mind, and it's kind of the problem with a story like Dory, is that you have a character, a protagonist, who doesn't know what their objective is, or at least constantly forgets it. How yeah. do you write <laughs> for a character like that? And how do you keep that... You know, because they play her absent-mindedness and her short-term memory loss as a running gag in the first film. And here it suddenly becomes, you know, a, a, a thing of poignance. So I give them kudos for actually what was kind of a one-joke character and adding some dimension to it. But at the end of the day, you're going to get a family-friendly film with great visuals, a lot of fun story detail, and uh, yeah, it's certainly worth your time if you haven't seen it already. I mean, I tend to agree. I do think it's one of the weaker Pixar films mm -hmm. overall, and partially because it's not till really over halfway through the film that it starts doing anything original at all. Yeah, I mean, I mean you're just retreading stuff we saw a from lot the of first the beats one. Are the same. It's it, like, oh, let's bring back these characters we like. You know, it's not till she's full on gags. in the aquarium, yeah. like, a, a, and dealing with that, and we meet a bunch of new characters that there ends up being any sort of entertainment, real new entertainment value to it. Um, I, I did really, the one thing that really stood out was Idris Elba and Dominic West as two sea lions yeah. that are always like, it's a little mini pushing off reunion. their like mentally disabled friend. <laughs> yes. uh, there's a lot of weird commentary in here about sympathy for people with psychological issues overall. Yeah. Well, I mean, know? that goes back to the original Pixar, uh, the original 
uh, Finding Nemo, where you had a character who had, you know, a, a, a deformed fin. So it's kind of like taking these disabilities, and that's another thing this movie does, which is find a way to go, okay, you have this disability, but... How is it also a form of strength? How is it something that can be dealt with? And yeah, it is empowering, and it's a good message for kids. And I know I'm making it sound like homework, but you know, it's actually yeah. not. This isn't this isn't cinematic vegetables. It's, this is a fun movie. It's it's not hateful at all. And if it's you're not worried gonna... about that. It's not even close to as bad as either one of the Cars films. It's not even bad. It's yeah. just at its worst, it's unnecessary. Yeah, you know. Um, but. If you if you did love this movie, you love this series, uh, it, they pipe packed this as they do with Pixar and Disney films, full of bonus features. A lot of which are really interesting. Like we said, the, there's a whole one about the octopus specifically and how they how it was. I mean, the title's called "The Octopus That Nearly Broke Pixar" yeah. to give you a good idea of how incredibly difficult, it in fact, was. But one of my favorite bonus features on here is, in fact, there's. Uh, a cool thing where you can put it in and it's just living aqu- animated aquariums. Yeah. Like, so you put it on as just as your background where your TV becomes a, a cool Pixar it's fish tank. saver, yeah. yeah. I was like, okay, that's kind of cool thing to add Which on Which is really, there. if you think about it, I mean, aquariums were what people used before screensavers existed. Yes. You just looked at it. Uh, and then, of course, the short film that played before the movie originally, yeah, Piper, is on here, which is a good one. I actually, it, it, it ended up being one of my favorite ones. In fact, I really, really liked it. Yeah. But, yeah, Finding Dory, it's a solid package. It's just, you know, it's not the best animated film of the year. No. Uh, neither was our next <laughs> title when it came out. Or the any year. wildly overrated oh, Space God. Jam. You know what? This mo- When did this movie come out? 96? This is the 20th anniversary, which is why it's being repackaged now. And, you know, I have managed to go 20 years without ever having seen this. You had never yet. seen this. Okay. No. And damn you for making me watch it. <laughs> uh, I, at the time... Now, okay, look. I understand, because I've met people like this. I understand that for some people of a certain age, this was an important film for them. This is something that they have a lot of sentimental attachment to. I'm not going to criticize you for that. If you were eight years old and this movie blew your mind, then hey, that's great. Here's a chance to watch it again. You've probably already seen it, but for those of you who haven't, like myself until a few days ago, uh, it is <laughs> Sorry. Sto- it is Warner Brothers' attempt to resuscitate a then moribund series of characters they had. Uh, they wanted to bring some life to this IP and re... Uh, Sort of reintroduce yeah, the, uh, the Looney Tunes to a new generation of kids whose money they had not yet gotten. And with pretty much so. being the, I think, the first major Looney Tunes feature post Mel Blanc as yeah. well, which and, was and kind of know, a scary thing. But they had to do it in such a way that they could bring in the one of the world's greatest athletes and, not incidentally, one of the world's greatest commercial pitchmen of all time, <laughs> yeah. uh, Michael Jordan, who... Uh, is a good sport. Uh, if you watch some of the special features or listen to some of the commentaries on this, you know, they go into the fact that, yeah, you know, he was training, he was doing a lot of stuff, and also finding time to make this movie in between. I mean, and, the, you know, he worked hard on this, but, and he's a good sport, but nothing is going to convince anybody that Michael Jordan is a good actor. No, he's better than Shaq. Yeah. I'll give him that. And, and like I said, this. Movie doesn't really re- require a really good actor in it either. No, it I mean, but he's yeah. he's serviceable as he needs to be for the that, role. That's it. it's, and it's you know the idea is like the Looney Tunes. For all except they basically kidnap Michael Jordan because this uh, evil conglomerate theme park 
owner in space, voiced by Danny DeVito, has sent down his little cutesy alien bug-like things his minions, to tell them, well, we're going to kidnap all the Looney Tunes and bring them out to this amusement park to work as slaves to entertain people. And they're like, oh, well, uh, we then we challenge you to a game of basketball, because how could we lose against these little things who then go and steal the athletic abilities of quite a few other very famous of athletes. all the other athletes who aren't like Michael Jordan. Charles ba- Barkley and what have you. Uh, and there's a kind of funny running gag with these guys that they keep popping back up where these guys are so incompetent they can't do anything anymore. They just have the almost no motor skills of any kind left. They're like, what's wrong with me? Whereas Michael Jordan's like, okay, well, I'll play, but, but these, these, I'll, I'll play with you guys. Sure, I love Looney Tunes. But these bug-like aliens turn into giant, like, nine-foot-tall monstrosities. Right. Once with they suck Uber. all the power from all these other athletes. For the time, I understand that for the time, this was actually pretty cutting edge. It was a fairly new mix of live action, 2D animation, and 3D CGI animation all mixed together. And it's on that level, yeah, it works. Uh, as a technical level, yes, it, it is an accomplishment. Its biggest problem is just that it's not funny. It's not that funny. And I love the Looney Tunes. And yes, I grew up on the Looney Tunes. I love them. And they just don't need this whole... They could have made a Looney Tunes movie without Michael Jordan. Well, to me, that's kind of where it really is weakened. Because it's like, well, the Looney Tunes aren't really cool enough to sell a movie. Well, yeah, but it's, Michael Jordan will sell you can You can smell... The producers were meetings around this uh, oh, one yes. about like how like everything and and how every single one of these characters, Looney Tunes, has to do stuff like we think this is things kids would say today, like right. like a Michael Jordan saying to Daffy Duck, "You to duck." You're like, oh, it makes me shiver every time I yeah. hear that. Like, I, oh, that's so horrible. I mean, you know, the, the one thing that okay, the one thing I found that was kind of interesting, and, and by interesting, I mean it's just something that I didn't know, but it made sense when I found out. Uh, is was listening to the audio commentary with the director and also two of the voice actors, uh, the great Billy West. Yeah, and, one of the uh, best vo- the voice people working today. Absolutely. And uh, and D. Bradley Baker. These are two guys who are in everything. They do one of those annoying things that I hate. It's one of those gimmicks where they're like, commentary featuring Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck. Yeah, and it's and like, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. At, when they do shut up and just talk as themselves, it's interesting. Uh, the one sort of salient point I got from the commentary is the director got the gig, not because he was the obvious person for the job, but because Michael Jordan asked for him because this is a guy who had directed him in a number of commercials and he was already comfortable with him. Yeah. Which, again, that just tells you this is not a passion project. This is a work for hire Everybody involved just seemed to be there for a buck. Bill Murray looks like he's having fun. Yeah. But Bill Murray always kind of. Looks I mean, the like best part about fun. this is the cameos. Yeah, uh, by yeah. other actors like Wayne Knight's kind of funny. Sure. Like Bill Murray has some funny moments in this thing. Like I said, the other basketball players, Larry Bird, one of them as well, uh, have some funny moments in there. But the, okay. the you know when your Looney Tunes are not funny but cringeworthy with yeah. everything they do. But it's again, like, okay. you know, there's somebody who loves this movie. There's a lot of people who do. And, and and I've not, you know, once again, there are movies I love that I know are bad, yeah. that I just saw them at that age right. where I'm so like, okay. I'm not going to take that away like from I, them. I can watch the shit out of Flash Gordon, and I know what a bad sure. movie that is. Absolutely. But I still enjoy it every time I see but, it. But I will say one thing in passing, because there's really not much more to say about this movie. Uh, however, if you already own it, 
this is basically just a repackage of the previous oh, edition. It's not even basically. It, it, it is. is. I mean, the only they difference put is it in a steel case. They put it in a steel case. It's the only difference. With really crappy art. I mean, it doesn't even look like they got any one at Warner's Animation to provide the art. It looks like someone in the art department somewhere just try to do their best version of the Looney Tunes. So they look a little off model and they're weirdly composited. Uh, so, yeah, if you already own this. Unless you're one of those guys who collects steel books, I know there's some of you out some there. Some of them are out there, or that, or, make, you know, or if you just didn't buy it the first time yeah, around. Otherwise, and you, you know, it. save yourself some cash. And the whole reason this even exists is just because okay, the old one went out of print, so now yeah. we're reissuing it, and we'll like well, cause put it in a steel book in case there is a collector out there. Yeah, yeah, but 20th anniversary and no bonus feature shows you how little the studio still even oh, gives a shit about yeah. this movie. As why would they? It's really not a very good movie. No. Uh, now we talk about the animated film that came out this year, which is The Secret Life of Pets. Now, I didn't get to, animated movie. I did not get to see this when it came out in the theater, although some of my cohorts at the site did, and uh, they assured me it was absolutely terrible. And I disagree. I didn't think this was too bad at all. No, I, but it's, you know. it's, it's certainly no Pixar or Disney production. No. It's Illumination Entertainment who love to do who, their whole thing is cutesy. That's their it, whole thing. Cutesy. They do the the, yeah. the, the uh, Despicable Me movies and the Minions. They that's their trick. They're and the pitched secret at a much life, younger audience. Yeah, the Secret Life of Pets is continuing that tradition with all of these dogs and a cat yeah. who are friends together, who live like in the same building or nearby. And what makes uh, this work is the voice talent. Yeah, a new dog gets bought by by uh, the main dog's female owner. It's a Jack Russell Terrier named Max is the main character, which is Louis C.K. of all people. But then Duke, this big brown shaggy mongrel dog, played but voiced by Eric Stone, streets brought in, and they just want nothing to do with each other. But of course, through a series of ridiculous stuff, they end up out on the streets and having to try and fight their way back home, which is made more difficult by the fact that there is a gang of psychotic animals led by a cute little fuzzy bunny who's basically like the Malcolm X of cute little fuzzy bunnies. Played by Kevin Hart. And this is actually the one good gag in the movie. The idea of like this sort of a uh, militant group of pets, the uh, the the pets that were flushed. They're the flushed old pets. Right. The pets that have been abandoned by their owners and now hate humanity and want to do anything they can to screw with humans. There's some good gags in that little group. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, but, there's you know, the, the best stuff in this movie takes place in the scenes with them, which are yeah, uh, which are are kind of funny. Um, I mean, there's nothing in here. There there was nothing I felt hateful. It no. just felt fell back so often on like the awe factor it's in this awe, movie. And there's also a lot of very easy jokes. I mean, we've all had, it's the same idea of like, Oh, I wonder what my pets do when I'm out. Well, of course, guess what? As soon as you're gone, your pets know how to work the blender and turn on the radio and know how to move around the apartment and yeah. do all sorts of things. And, and that's a funny joke, except, you know, the, the pets seem very worldly until they suddenly just don't understand basic things. And I'm like, yeah. what, you figured out how to work the television and how to turn on, like, the radio, but you the whole concept, like, I don't know what humans do when they leave the house. I'm yeah. like, okay, I get it. Well, yeah, obviously yeah, this is a film you can't sit and think too much think about. It, of but course. it has a solid voice cast, along with people we already mentioned, Absolutely. Jenny Slate, 
Ellie Kemper, Albert Brooks, Lake Bell, Dana Carvey, Hannibal Buress, who, by the way, when you get Hannibal Buress to play a character in a film like this, you give him more to do. Yeah. Uh, Bobby Moynihan, uh, Chris Renaud, Steve Coogan. I mean, this is a a pretty solid voice cast for a movie that ultimately is kind of forgettable, but it's also not a bad way to spend an evening watching a film. If you have kids, this is not one of the ones you're going to be like, oh, God. And a completely unnecessary, oddly surreal uh, musical number sequence with animated sausages. I, for a moment, I oh, thought, did so I put in weird. sausage party? I mean, by mistake? I mean, yeah, there's a here? scene where the, the two dogs end up in a sausage factory and they go into this shared hallucination of being in, like, it reminded me of the Simpsons episode where Homer goes to, like, Candy World, yeah. and then he's like singing and dancing, and then eating the people. And it's all to you. We belong together from the Grease soundtrack. I mean, yeah. it's it's just random. It's so bizarre. I, I almost wanted more of this random weirdness before it transitioned into back into just a simple buddy comedy. Well, you can get more because if you get the Blu-ray, it has four mini movies that are sort of like uh, or there are three and a making of, and one of them is called Weenie, which continues more stuff in that Weenie world. Yeah. If, if that didn't gross you out thoroughly. Uh, and there's one with the minions, of course. Yeah, which was you know. not much to watch. I mean, these yeah, again, a... special features all pitch more towards kids. But actually, I kind of like some of the special features here a little bit more than I did on the ones on the Pixar release, oddly enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they go a little bit more into the making of the film. And if you want, you can uh, watch segments of the movie with the minions watching the movie doing mystery science theater commentary on it's it. In gibberish. If you will, which is weird thing to do, I, I guess. But, they, I mean, like, another animated film, which means it's packed with little featurettes, and if that's the sort of thing that interests you, then, hey, there's there's some real bonus features on this thing. If I had children and were had to watch this movie, I wouldn't hate myself while, while watching it. As opposed to our next title, which is Nine oh. Lives. I did not see this in the theater because I had no Why intention of saying it, and I did not ask them to send this to me, but they sent it to me. And I said, you know what? Obviously, something in the universe wants me to just watch this movie, so I'm going to give it a shot and see if it's as bad as everybody says. And the answer is, actually, it wasn't quite as bad as people said. I mean, people talked about this thing like it was the new apocalypse of film, yeah. and it's not. Well, it's just a forgettable piece of trash. It's lazy, and it's repetitive. <laughs> and, okay, let's let's just get this inane plot out of the way. Kevin Spacey is this sort of alpha male corporate raider, you know, uh architect, master, Bill. he's basically Donald he's Trump, a, just he's slightly a, nicer. He's a southern accent away from being his House of Cards guy. Yeah, and you know, he's got, you know, a son from a first marriage and a daughter from a, his current marriage. He's married to uh, Jennifer Garner for some strange reason. Yeah. I guess because money can buy you that kind of thing. And, you know, <laughs> he's basically just an obnoxious, self-centered guy. And then through a bizarre chain of events, uh, he is put into a coma and his body is exchanged with that of a cat. And I'm curious why the we never got any scenes of, you know, him in a coma thinking like a cat, but that never happens. Yeah. Apparently this is a one-way transfer and he has to uh, deal with a mystical cat whisperer uh, played by Christopher Walken, who's basically playing the same character he played in Click, yes. which is like, 
I'm going to give you this gift, but it's actually a curse until you learn how to become a better man and love the people you, you know, your family and so forth. And, and then we get exactly what yeah. you expect, which the, is a series of the same types of jokes in Secret Life of Pets. Poop oh, jokes. he's 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 self-aware and can do very human things, but at the same time, he keeps falling into cat behavior yeah. as if well. If you ever wanted to see a cat try to figure out how to pour himself a drink, you know, you might get something out of this. This is a Barry Sonnenfeld film. And you're like, what happened, and, man? Well, the thing is, this is kind of really in Barry Sonnenfeld's wheelhouse, which is big, high-concept comedies that, you know, don't... If you really think about it, there aren't a lot of good Barry Sonnenfeld films. <laughs> there really aren't. I mean, this is a guy who started off as no, the Men in Black for the Coen brothers. <laughs> Men in Black was a good gimmick, but it's not a great movie. But it worked for the most part. And, you know, th because it's a Sonnenfeld film... It really looks good. Okay, I mean, Get Shorty is, a, is the one Get great Shorty movie that he made. Right. But, you know, th this is like high class all the way. And that's the thing that's so disappointing about this movie. It's not that it's bad. We have worse films to talk about. We've talked about way worse it's, films. It's than bad this. because they it's put made, a lot of effort into it. They put it. so much money and effort, and there's so many competent people on both sides of the camera. It's like, how do you get a cast like this, a production design like this, a, a director, DP, locations, budget? Everything about this reeks of class, and yet you don't. All you can get out of that group is this mediocrity. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I mean, you know, it had five writers, which is like, how but, did five people all fuck up this no, bad? No. The real question is, why did these five, why were these five willing to let their names be printed on this? Yeah. I mean, I suspect there were probably more, <laughs> you know, uh, these were just the five who were like, shit, we're contractually obligated to have our name on the poster. Uh, but yeah, this is, this is not horrible. Look, if you're like, six or it's, seven it's eight pretty, years old it's pretty you're horrible. gonna it'll be fun it's, there's little life lessons I'd it's say, cute i'd say it is pretty horrible you know, it's just not as horrible as I, people said it was if you're a child you might enjoy this and one day many years from now when you're thinking about your favorite movies when you were a kid this ain't gonna be one of them. no this will but not be your keep, space jam it'll keep those kids <laughs> quiet for a couple of hours and that's all you can ask for something of this it's just a shame that it took this many talented people to make something this eh. and i'm the cat guy i'm the guy who can watch cat videos all day and i was like this is boring as fuck this is just not entertaining there's nothing about this is, isn't like thoroughly obvious uh yeah it's totally skippable if you are one of those people though you buy it for your kids they might – I don't know why they even would care about a bonus features that are behind the scenes making of stuff. Why would you put that on yeah, here? They're, Nobody, they're, they're not going to give a shit about the thing. this. It's like these are actually more geared towards adults than than they are towards kids. Yeah. And a little baffling. Yeah, it is. It's baffling all the way around. All right, so let's get out of kids' films and cover oh, the yeah. two okay. music films we got this week, one of oh, which yeah. is Morphine, Journey of Dreams. Now, Morphine was a band that I remember like being really into for their first couple albums, being like, wow, these guys are so unique. It's drums, like... Oh, what is it? Uh, it saxophone it's very, uh, it's and, very, yeah. and uh, uh, a bass, and that's now, it. Well, the thing is... And a singer. Part yeah. of what made... Morphine's so good. And you're right. Their first couple of albums, the thing is they only had like three. Uh, and that's part of this story, the sort of tragic demise of this band, uh, which was led by a gentleman by the name of Mark Sandman. Enormously talented guy. Enormously talented writer. He was the lead vocalist. Had such a... Lead. For a band named Morphine, he had the perfect voice for it. He did. This sort of and soothing, 
but with character. They're very dark. It's often been described as noir. It's a hard sound to describe, and it's so unique. They're one of the most unique-sounding bands of the 90s. And Sandman, with his name Sandman, when people asked him what morphine was about, it was always a reference to, like, Morpheus, dreams. Sure. You know, sleep. Uh, but they had this really low, low sound. And that came from the fact that, you know, they had a fairly stripped-down drum kit, also pitched towards the lower end. They had a baritone saxophone that drove most of the music. Mm -hmm. And Sandman himself, who was a bass player, but he played ba slide bass with only two strings. Right. Completely original, what odd setup. Sound. That somehow... And it worked. Was, worked well enough that they had a couple radio hits, Yeah, for God's and it was sake. so stripped down, yet it somehow sounds very rich and full. You yeah. don't think you're listening to three guys doing all of this. Now, basically, what this does is, and this is truly, this has to be a labor of love, because this is not like any big, sort of glossy, sort of big hit sort of documentary. It's all... All of the people who were from the band who still survive, managers, ex-girlfriends, all these folks who were somehow related to the band. Uh, I, I, it feels like it's a film made by a fan, but a fan who actually was dedicated enough to put together a really good package. And it tracks the development from their starts in bands in Boston. Sandman was, you know, a member of multiple bands. And finally, all of his various bands coalesced into his one project, Morphine, that they went forward with had some surprisingly good radio play, and little by little we're starting to climb the ladder of success. And I, I guess this isn't a spoiler because it's a fact. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a documentary. Uh, so. It's a documentary, and part of this is, you know, you normally expect into, when you go into a rock documentary that it's going to be like, oh, and then, you know, there were the drugs and the infighting right. and all the horrible that shit. That wasn't the problem. It wasn't it. No, they were going on fine. They had their issues, but, you know, they were moving forward. And Mark Sandman uh, had a heart condition and uh, had a fatal heart attack. Uh, uh, like, and in important the middle of a set. On stage. On stage. In an Italian hillside village. Yes. At the feet of an ancient towering church. It, I mean, it, it's it, about as mo most romantic a way a rock star uh, could go absolutely. out. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and, you know, this is not a sort of grim, like, oh, but what could have been? You know, there's inevitably there's going to be some of that because the real question is, how would morphine have developed? You know, where would they have gone? You know, and, you know, would their sound have evolved in any way? And while the band has continued in various sort of like little tribute groups, sure. you know, it's essentially over. Well, of course, you, you know? because without his distinctive voice, there's no morphine. No, and he uh, was the, the head writer. Yeah. You know, he really was the heart of the band. And so this is a loving tribute to his memory. Yeah. The it's, first, it's know. less a documentary and more of a tribute. Yeah. Even getting as well, like not just the members of, of Morphine and their friends, but also like other celebrities like uh, Joe Strummer, Henry Rollins, Absolutely. Steve Berlin, who were who are interviewed to say, "Yeah, this guy was amazing. This yeah. band was amazing." So yeah, if you this is one of those that's really just for fans of the band. It, it is primarily for fans, but if you are kind of curious about Morphine, it's also a damn good introduction. Now this yeah. uh, next. Music film, I actually think, is one of those that you don't have to give a shit about Absolutely. the band involved to really enjoy this oh, documentary. Yeah. It's called We Are Twisted Fucking Sister, <laughs> about the band Twisted Sister. And yes, it's an intimidating over two hours long oh, documentary. God, yeah. But what it's this so is long. actually about, 
is the process and the difficulties and the and the the life of being a successful work working rock yeah. band like and not in the terms of being hugely famous because this movie ends right as Twisted Sister that's, make it and that's gets signed. the most interesting aspect about this movie and you're right it is I was like my god this is almost two and a half hours long uh-huh. uh, most and of these things are like clock in at ninety minutes or less but it totally keeps you with it by Absolutely. like following. I had no idea that these guys were like in like New Jersey and that area. They were like the biggest yeah, thing they imaginable. Were, they were a big and part of the tri state. They couldn't area. get signed to save their lives. Yeah. Nobody was interested. And Labels actively made fun of them. Like, who the fuck would sign these guys? Terrible, uh, terrible things that happened that prevented them. You know, they had like. They had success pulled out from under them multiple occasions. But what was surprised me is. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of Twisted Sister. No, I mean, they're silly, and they yeah. had their moment in the sun that I enjoyed for what it was yeah, worth when the original for when me, they Stay Hungry came out. For me, they consciousness around the very same time that they're actually kind of leaving the scene. But yeah, this is a band that had existed in some way, shape, or form since like 1972. Mm-hmm. And you know, it took them 10 years of like just being like the hottest bar band, yeah. dominating every club. So, I mean, in this tri-state literally area. selling out 3,000, 5,000 person yeah. shows, and still music labels weren't interested in yeah. them at all. Like they would play the same venues once a week. For years and, a glam and rock sell out band. every show. A glam rock band because they had a huge years after glam rock and yeah, pretty much I mean, just died out. And had this huge stage show and elaborate yeah. stuff they would do. And they talk about Lots how of all of it evolved. You know, there was a point where they were they really they almost killed somebody because they had a thing where they were making oh, yeah. people drink on sing stage. Till you puke. Yeah, sing till you puke. <laughs> and the thing is, this is just fun to watch because it's really about these guys just living the party for 10 years and they're 10 absolutely plus years like up front about like we were going to dominate we were just going to go out there and beat the shit out of your band and be better than you and put on a better show and after 10 years of that wondering why the hell aren't we millionaires yet yeah, and kind of making me want to see twisted sister in those days yeah a lot of great archival got, footage before they got over polished and like you know, the songs were sort of stripped down. They were turning into a straight sort of horror band. I mean, they if really you will. start off just like being basically I mean, a glam cover band. So they're just yeah. covering, you know, Bowie and it's, they're covering the Velvets yeah. and Lou Reed and Mato. Yeah. After all those bands had kind of passed or just transitioned out of that, they stuck with it. Uh, so yeah, it's a really strange movie in that regards. But again, Talk about a labor of love. Uh, the interesting thing is to me all the fans that they bring out. Oh, yeah. Guys were like, oh, yeah, we used to drive three hours to go see them. We do that four times a week. You know, we just sleep on the couch and then get up in the morning and go straight to work and then go back to the you club know, These the people who were like, yeah, we saw. They're like I, groupies. We're like, I saw Twisted Sister every week for 10 years. Yeah. You know, that was their thing. And it was one of those that, like, if the you lived, in that, if you lived in that area. You knew who Twisted Sister was, yeah, because they were playing every almost goddamn day. It was like they were playing a band. club, yeah. <laughs> you know, they were the prides of the neighborhood, and almost made it big, big in England before they did here. And then another know? huge disaster. Yeah. I mean, this is a case where, like, yeah, a band member will have a stroke the night before a major concert. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, they'll sign with a label, and the guy will die en route to yeah. Europe. You know, all <laughs> kinds of horrible things right at the moment, and then it builds to. And then they had this big hit record, and then they disbanded, and then came back together. And that, really, the last, like, 20 years of Twisted Sister mm-hmm. are covered in the last, like, minute yeah. of this. Because that part isn't thing. as interesting. It's not. Yeah. But it does say, it does end with, 
But that's a story for another film. <laughs> right, I'm right. like, you know, I hope they make that film. Because this was very as well made as this This is. was very well made. It's really fun to watch. It's, like I said, super informative about what it's like to be in one of those types of bands. Absolutely. Which every town's got them. Those bands that, like, people just religiously go see regularly, but yeah. they're never going to make it big. They're never going to get out. You know, they to, did for a brief while. Yeah, they had their moment in the sun. Uh, okay, so let's move on to another documentary that I really enjoyed called Deep yes. Web. And un- the one thing that made me sad was this was not an overlook at the whole Deep Web. I was looking no, forward to it- a much more sort of in-depth look at all the different things. But no, the, after a brief introduction to what the Deep Web is, which is basically, if you've ever heard of getting a Tor browser, which right. bypasses the standard browser things that you yeah. can't see. And this way yeah. you can go and visit anything, and, including some And the Deep Web isn't so much that it's stuff. hidden. It's just stuff that, I mean, yes, there's obviously a lot of shady stuff out there, but yeah. as the film makes the effort of pointing out, it's like, actually, the deep web is just all the stuff that's not indexed. It's stuff yeah. that's not going to pull up on a Google search. Exactly. The stuff that you know, you have to know how to get there in order to see it. And this in this movie focuses actually on Ross Ulbricht, who was allegedly the originator and supervisor of the Silk Road online bazaar. Now, you've almost certainly heard of the Silk Road right. by now, which was a eBay for drugs and all yeah. sorts of, of, of stuff. And this is actually pretty fascinating because it's not what I thought it was going to be at all. It's kind of how the FBI were actively breaking the law left, right, and center just to try and get this guy. I mean, they were breaking laws in a big way themselves. And, like, the idea of saying, like, what this isn't, you know, how could you possibly say that what you're doing is fair? And even the question is this guy even who they think he is? Right. There uh, is a question of how anonymous. They, I mean, I, you know, I, I myself am kind of torn. And I think, you know, if you watch the film, you'll have to make you know, that decision for yourself. Whether this guy, I mean, this guy was clearly involved. Oh, yeah. No, there's never any doubt it, about that. But, but the, the uh, idea that, like, first off, it seems clear there were, he went by the Dread Pirate Rob- right. Roberts, which is a Which is a giveaway to, right there yeah. that in, in The Princess Bride, right. the Dread Pirate Roberts is just the name that gets handed down. Right. And in fact, that everyone asserts that here. It's like, no, there was like four or five people at any given time who were posting as the Dread Pirate Roberts and the FBI trying to say this guy was actually trying to have people killed professionally who were questioning what was going on. And everyone who knows him is like, there's no fucking way that guy did that. It's like, if you knew this guy, you would know. And maybe somebody did, but it's not this guy. But it's not this guy. And yet they're still trying to nail him on stuff related to that. The way the court case is still being handled in the appeals process. It came down to a question of like, well, you know, they found his IP address. The question is, well, like, you know, the story about how the, uh, the lead uh, FBI investigator just stumbled upon the IP address, uh, really strains credulity. You know, really the only way they could have gotten it, at least the argument that the filmmakers make it, is that, you know, they had to have broken some serious laws. And one thing that was interesting to me is I thought it was going to be like, oh, this is going to be like, you know, it's a a story about the dangers of drugs and drug trafficking. But it's really, if you, the way the, and, and most of these folks are, presented anonymously you do have activists who are you know openly you know showing their faces but you do have some people who were involved with the silk road who appear you know in uh, shadow in shadow uh and you realize that the silk road was kind of this weird sort of quasi libertarian space where it's like look we don't give a shit 
You buy drugs. If you know how to handle it, yeah. that's fine. We don't have any moral judgments. We'll sell you whatever. I mean, they did have rules. A lot of people were under the mistaken impression that the child right. pornography was for sale on there, which right. it was not. They, they were clear about that. Uh, but as far as, like, everything else, like, you know, and, and that's the other thing that they pointed out was, like, yeah, you could shut the Silk Road down or try, but a whole lot of other competitors are going to pop up which in they did place. Yeah. you know and those guys are not necessarily as well controlled uh, as the silk road was so in addition to drugs you know you might be able to buy illegal weapons you might be able mm-hmm. to buy state secrets and you might be able to buy child pornography and it's a really weird creepy place uh, on the web that a lot of people don't know about uh, you're not going to come out of this movie i think uh, well let me rephrase that Depending on your views, you might have a different reaction to this movie, but it's one of those where you have to watch it and make your own decision. I don't yeah. think the filmmakers – it's very clear that they're on Russ Ulbricht's side. Yes. You know, they have all his family, his lawyers. At, yeah, at least in, in terms – But they raise the question. You of know? like this guy is being railroaded more than he should have been. Right. I think what it comes down to is the FBI realized if they only stuck to what they were able to prove – they wouldn't be able to get him for much, right. ultimately, because he's just the he's the guy running the in between. He's not handling anything, no. you know. And so they're like, okay, well, we're going to basically just a mod. We're going to have to invent or at least manipulate the facts so we can make this guy an example, yeah. uh, which is what this movie is arguing. And you talk about the filmmakers. Interestingly enough, it's uh, Bill and Ted, uh, Bill and Ted, who made well, this. Keanu Reeves does Alex, the, does the the voice yeah. uh, the the narration, and yeah. uh, Alex. Winter, Winter, I'm sorry. Uh, who who played uh, Keanu Reeves' other on Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is the director, who's actually a fine director. Oh, yeah, he made he's, several he's movies, and I I always say anything by him is worth checking out. I always think it's so great that after all these years, he and Keanu Reeves were still like best friends. Yeah, you know, I mean they're they're never gonna they're, they're never gonna make that Bill and Ted sequel, but hey, this. This will do for now, and it's clearly uh, a project that they both feel passionate about. Never say never, Marco. Uh, you really want to see that? <laughs> I do, actually. Their idea of like where they're all—they're the age they were supposed to be already, and the the band should have broke, and it never happened. And they're like, "What happened? How come we are not huge like every future we saw?" And so the movie's about what happened that changed that, so that they're they didn't get famous like they were supposed uh, to. And I was like, "Okay, that's kind of funny," because you know they're playing with the fact. Much much like they do on Ash and the Evil Dead. Yeah, they're old. <laughs> you know, you have to acknowledge that and have fun with it. Anyway, we'll see. It may never happen. It probably will never happen, but you never know. Uh, one I got to see you did not get to see no, was uh, the new Rift Tracks Mystery Science Theater 3000 reunion show. Now, this was done originally, I believe, as a, I believe it was a, uh, a thing first for the um, uh, people who backed were uh, the Kickstarter for okay. the new show. I think they were, I'm not sure if it was free tickets or, or how that worked, but. Did they, just, did they record this live? Um, yes. Oh, okay. So this was available for them to see streaming online. Uh, and now they've actually released it in a blue, blu ray. It's, you've got the core guys who run Rift Tracks are the guys who were the core guys of the final iteration of Mystery Science Theater, which is Bill Corbett. Mike Nelson and Kevin Murphy. They're the ones who own and operate and are on most of the Rift Tracks commentaries. Although quite a few other people have appeared on them over the years, including Neil Patrick Harris, who is funny as shit on the Willy Wonka one, or, or uh, uh, Weird Al Yankovic on the Essential Jurassic Park episode. Uh, but here they're joined mainly, like I said, this is a mystery science theater thing. And so they have gotten out, they have brought along 
you know, you've got the original, the, the, the original guys from the show. Of course, Joel is here who started, uh, mystery science theater in the first place. Um, and then he's teamed up with the new guy, uh, Jonah Ray from the Nerdist, who is going to be on the new Mystery Science Theater, the the uh, the host of that, or not host, but the, the the new guy who's kidnapped by the Mads. And then you have Mary Jo Peel, who was in, who came in on the sci-fi years of uh, Mystery Science Theater, playing Pearl Forrester. She's here, uh, who we actually interviewed back in the Spill Days on the Leog. She used to live here in Austin. She's a wonderful lady. She's teamed up with Bridget Nelson, who is Mike Nelson's wife, but also was one of those people who, during the Mike Nelson years, was on it constantly. When they needed somebody else to appear or something, she was there, and she was one of the main writers. Uh... So it's and then you you have Frank Conniff who is Frank Conniff who was a TV's Frank and Trace Bellio who was the uh, uh, original Doctor Forrester as well as the original Crow. So it's all gang together and the way they have it separated out is they in teams do shorts. I mean, and these are all shorts. They're doing live on stage with people. And there's something that makes the, this type of thing even funnier when you're hearing an audience react as well. That I think really works. It's why a lot of the new riff tracks they've been putting out on mm-hmm. DVD are actually live recordings, oh, okay. you know, that they do in front of an audience. Um, but like with the highlight here is probably Shake Hands with Danger, which is a classic old Mystery Science Theater one uh, with a, a theme song that will not leave your head, unfortunately. It's just about safety around giant industrial uh, equipment. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's all older shorts we've seen before with these people teaming up with each other. And then it closes with a giant one with a, with another classic one at your fingertips grasses that in fact, Bill Corbett has named his Tumblr blog after a line from it where he says corn is a grass. <laughs> Technically, I believe that's true. Yeah, it is. And it's fun watching them all together, but it's, you know, it's, I think the downside of all this, if there is any, which there's really not on the whole, but is that when you watch a, a Rift Tracks or a Mystery Science Theater, one of the fun things is always when they have a running joke that builds as it goes along. Right. I, that's always the funniest stuff. And when you've just got a bunch of shorts, there's really no opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. So, But it's ultimately you're watching this because, God, we're watching all these legends on stage together doing this. And it is a lot of fun. It, in fact, also comes with a few bonus features that uh, – that one of which nobody there got to see, which was a, it's a documentary, you know, a pseudo documentary. It's behind the scenes that includes a Q and a with the whole cast about Mr. Science theater. It's got some interesting things. And then there's the slideshow that they had on before they took the stage, which is a bunch of like fake facts, um, that are funny, uh, references to classic mystery science theater stuff. Uh, it's a fun little slideshow of stuff that's totally worth watching. So yeah, they, they really knocked it out of the park with this one. I thought for fans and it's even not a bad introduction for people to Mr. To riff tracks or mystery science theater at all, because it's all in bite sized chunks, yeah. you know? So yeah, a really good stuff. Cool. Uh, as well is the new twilight zone complete collection. Now these have all been released on blu-ray before. Mind you, yeah, and a massive set you got. Yeah, it's it's a pretty big. It's a it's a size of like a, a, a George R. R. Martin novel. Yeah, the, the whole yeah, thing. I was going to say it's a Bible thick enough to stop a bullet. Yeah, it's it's all in a plastic case now with the flip discs, and it's basically a cheaper way of packaging it than the last complete collection, yeah. which took all the separate Blu-ray sets and put them in a slip cover that was much bigger, and they were all separately packaged. So this one is like we got rid of the separate packaging and we just put. Everything that was in there 
in this new, you know, more portable plastic thing. Now, I myself prefer it the other way, like, because I, you know, these little plastic flippy things, they always break. They always break, you know, and they're like, okay, I'd rather have them in the separate cases and everything. That's me, but this is definitely a safe, sp- uh, uh, a, uh, a, a good deal smaller in size, which is nice. Yeah, but if that's and, not a problem for you, you can still go to the Amazon site, not only buy this site, you can probably find the original VHS collection. That's probably what, like... I'm not sure why you would many, want that. How though. many... How much of your shelf is that going to take up? That's how I remember seeing, like, old uh, <laughs> Twilight Zone. I never had the complete collection. But uh, I, now uh, I have no idea how much space that would take. So this is... Yeah, is this know, portable as it gets. Your your dad or your uncle is looking up great. This is a pretty damn good yeah. Christmas present. I mean, it's reasonably priced. It's one of those things that, like, yeah, great present. It's all 156 episodes of the original Twilight Zone, mind you. This is not the 90s Twilight Zone or even the, I think it was in the 2000s. It was a very short-lived one as oh, well. No. Um, and it's all the bonus features that came in the previous sets and, unfortunately, nothing else. Oh, okay. But that's a sizable amount of bonus features, you know. Yeah, no, it's, they're going to repackage this, this is, forever. This is just a repackaging, and it's it's a just fine one. You know, I just it's a it, if you're thinking of buying something for, you know, somebody who's in their 40s or older who really love classic sci-fi type stuff or horror, can, this is an ideal gift. I can think of two or three people who would just right off the bat would just, would just scream love that. Yeah, hours and hours of entertainment. Indeed, uh, another TV uh, set that just came out, and this is not a repackage as much as it's the first time that they've all been packaged together. Is the IT Crowd? Now, this is a British sitcom that introduced the world to Chris O'Dowd, who now has become a pretty big actor in and of yeah. himself. Uh, and well, it wasn't the first thing he'd done, but it's the first thing we all noticed that he'd done. And Richard Ayodeid, Ayod, I'm well, never sure, sure how to say it. Uh, let's see. I well, I think I a day. I a day. I think that's Iowa it. Day, I think. Iowa day. Yeah. Who was We're originally butchering his name in a Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, which is also really good. Oh but- yeah. If you love if you love Dark Place, you're gonna love IT Crowd. Well, he's, but I'm sure most people have already seen IT Crowd. He's moved on to being a director lately. He made Submarine and The Double, two movies I both really enjoyed. Oh, okay. But that's neither here nor there. This is them, uh, not that much younger because, in fact, the last thing in here was made just not that long oh, ago. Yeah, it's not an old show. It originally came out in 2006, and this is four seasons, six episodes apiece of the people who live in the basement of this company who are, you know, they're the IT. Department who generally their job consists of picking up the phone and say, "Do you did you turn it off and on again?" <laughs> and it ends up being pretty goddamn funny. Oh yeah, this uh, is a great workplace comedy with that great sort of slice of classic British surrealism thrown mm-hmm. in. You know, it's the kind of show where you know somebody's going to have you know a, a bird living in their desk drawer because why wouldn't they? Or there'll be uh, a piece of furniture on fire and everyone will kind of go, "Oh, we should do something about it." I'm underselling it. This is a great, great show. I mean, it's hard to break down because there's a lot of episodes. I managed to get through the first season, and I, I'm eager to get back into this. Because yeah, it's just so much fun. It, it's, it's hilarious. Uh, and, okay, there are going to be the people out there using the, I think, kind of offensive term. Oh, it's just blackface for nerds like Big Bang Theory. What the fuck ever? Yeah, like you can't say that. Nerds are not black people. They're you're like you can choose to be a nerd or not to some see, extent. If there's <laughs> only one black person. How do you accuse them of being blackface? Yeah, I just I, I it's 
I always hate that as an argument against it. Big Bang Theory theory isn't good because it's just not all that funny after you've watched a few episodes. You'll get first, like, okay, it's cute. But then you're like, all right, this is just okay. IT Crowd is much funnier. Yes. Uh, You know, also being a thing where it's about a bunch of nerds being mega, almost absurdly nerdy. Uh, but you know, there's a they have a third cohort who is a woman who is brought in to run the IT department who knows nothing about Absolutely computers, nothing. and makes her perfect for the job. Which doesn't matter because nobody in the company is paying any attention to what's going and on the in this basement. Boss is great. The guy yeah. they got playing the boss is yeah. fantastic. The guy who came in and but you didn't see the guy who came in in the second season who no, took over the not. show. Oh, because okay. the, the, there's one boss in the first season and then he's replaced by another guy in the in the second, third, and fourth season that is. Even funnier. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to that. This is one I'm going to revisit later. As well, it's you should. a sh- great show. Yeah, as well, you should. Uh, and this also, like, the last, I believe the um, the last thing on here is actually the, the return to it, which is just like a two-episode thing, mm-hmm. which is like they made, the, you know, it's basically two episodes crunched together into one movie, if you will. Which is the thing I love about these series is like the ep- the seasons are like six episodes, give or take. You know, it's mm-hmm. like there's not a lot of filler on this. It is just direct and to the point. Episode. Yes, um, tons of bonus features on this thing. Oh yeah, some good which, short films too. Yeah, there's some short films. There's a fake behind the scenes documentary that's really funny. Um, lots of outtakes. Commentary tracks on all of the season two and three episodes, uh, deleted scenes, title sequence animatics, interviews. I mean, it's it's a pretty solid oh, yeah. selection of stuff the they didn't even great. need to put together in here. Um, you I know, actually considering had to put this aside and go. I got to watch other stuff. I'm like, if I if I just dig into this. There's like four other movies I'm never going to get to. Yeah. So I had to I had to sacrifice what I really wanted to watch so I could watch Nine Lives. Damn you. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's all right. But you know I will get to it again. That's the great thing about having it all in one's place. Well, let's talk about more movies. Oh, uh, yeah. Which we move on to Morris from America. This just came out this year. In fact, it was like in some circles is being treated like as a top best of the year nomination. I'm thinking more like Independent Spirit Awards yeah. type level uh, of things. This uh, is American German uh, Buildings Roman or slash Coming of Age. I believe that's pronounced film. Buildings Roman. <laughs> oh wait, that's no, that's French, not German. Yeah, uh, yeah sure, whichever. Whatever. Uh, Something this harsh. It's a 13-year-old black American boy named Morse who is living in Germany with his dad Curtis, uh, played by the, the usually wonderful Craig Robinson, who is a soccer coach. <laughs> as a uh, job. Yeah, that's probably the most incongruous element in this. Thing. And he can't. He's the kid's really having a hard time fitting in um he has issues it's a culture clash comedy yeah and and he you know it's about he's he's like 13 so he's just puberty's just starting to kick in he's getting a crush on a girl there who really doesn't who is befriending him despite the fact that no one else in their school wants anything to do with him but he obviously wants more than that kid who's in a rap he suddenly has a little bit of cachet he's kind of exotic uh this is actually my pick of the week. Wow, really? Yeah, I, I really I, enjoyed it. I think it, it's a we're kind of making it sound like this could have gone so much in the direction of just being a sort of silly teen, gross out, goofy comedy. Mm-hmm. But I think there's something much smarter to it than that. It's the story of a young boy, as we mentioned, who is in another country. His mother has recently passed away. His father, who was previ- who was you know, usually uh, had to uh, commute back and forth between America and Europe, goes, you know what, come live with me in Germany, you need to be with me. And, 
you know, you're a 13-year-old kid. You're shy already. You know, he's a little overweight. The only thing he really enjoys doing is rapping. And suddenly he's in this culture where he doesn't understand the language. The music he likes is not represented around him. There are no other black people around him. You know, the kids around him are kind of like, assume like, well, you're black, so you must, you know, you must know where to get some weed or you must be able to play basketball. And he has to deal with all these little stereotypes that would be annoying enough in America. And yet in another culture, he's both exotic and kind of, you know, completely, completely out of his element. Uh, there's some wonderful turns by Craig Robinson, who I think, even though I never for one moment believe him as a soccer coach. No. On the other hand, though, uh, the few lines of German he does have, he nails. <laughs> and he also is actually kind of sweet. He is a sort of big kid to his to his own son, but when he has to become a father, he does that. And I think it's a really great balance in their relationship because you realize that this is a man who has been commuting back and forth to Germany for years, and he's had to go through everything his son has had to go through. Being the one black guy in town, being the one black guy on the team, and having to be kind of cut off from everybody he knows and everything he knows. Mm -hmm. And he sees that happening to his son. He gets him a tutor. Uh, the tutor is also a very interesting character. you know. And he also, as you mentioned, the young woman who uh, he sort of befriends, they have this really weird relationship and where this film builds to is not where I thought it was going to build to. And I appreciate that. When you can kind of pull the rug out from under me and go, oh, I saw where you were going to make this like some feel-good comedy where everything's going to work out in the end. And it doesn't do that. No. It's not a grim downbeat ending. No, no. But by it's any means. more realistic than you would this, have expected. This feels more... So many of these films around kids tend to feel formulaic. Mm -hmm. This feels like a sort of slice of life kind of drama. It's like this thing happens... And, you know, it moves on with your life. You meet people who come into your world for a brief moment of time. You make a connection and then they move on. And I suspect that if Morris or a real person, you know, these are just things that happen to him as a teenager. But one day, 20 years from now, he's going to realize that, oh, man, that was a huge moment in my life. You were that a lot find who I was. You were a lot fonder of this than I, I was. I really, really was. Which I, I did not dislike this But at I think all. I also saw three or four shitty movies right, right before, before this. And I thought, oh, thank God. This There's is something Nine good. Lives, then this. Yeah, okay. it was just like, thank God, a movie about people. I, and I did enjoy this, but there's a lot of these of films like this that have been coming sure. out lately. The coming of the alternative coming of age story has is a big thing right now. But I haven't and seen a movie about a black kid from South LA no. stuck in a little town in Germany. Well, because that's a rare experience. But, that, <laughs> to but be that's sure. why I enjoyed it. It's a voice that we're not used to hearing. It was okay for me. I never disliked it, but it never really grabbed me either. Although I did really enjoy the scenes. With Craig Robinson, his yeah. relationship with his son is never what you expect it's going to be. Yeah. He's doing his best to be a really good dad, but he doesn't really know how to do it. Right. And he is just a big kid himself. And he kind of, he's not great at the whole, like, giving, laying the law down with his right. kid. You know, even when the kid fucks up, he's kind of like, man, you fucked up. Oh, well, let's go get pizza. <laughs> you know? Well, there are moments where he, like, he, you know, he sends him to his room and then you see him out of... Okay, what's an acceptable time before yeah. I can go and say, okay, you know, you've been punished enough. Let's go. And there's a few bonus features, audio commentary with the director and the two lead actors. There's an 11-minute making of. There's some bloopers, deleted scene, casting tapes. More than usually expect in a little indie film like yeah. this. But this is definitely one of those films that a, a lot of people feel like you did, that this was yeah. one of the better and films And I love the year. look of it, too. 
Uh, next up, we have Indignation. Now, this is the latest attempt, of which there have been many, to adapt one of Philip Roth's books. And yeah. if you ask me, Philip Roth's books are, by the nature of his style of writing, unfilmable. There, There is no way to really translate what Roth does well to the screen, except as maybe just an illustration to go with you having already read the book, basically. Because all his stuff is about inner dialogue and, sure. and deeper thinking and philosophy. And this is, you know, the the bones of the story they here, which is Logan Lerman plays a uh, uh, market Ma- Marcus Messner, who's a Jewish student from New Jersey, who you know, working class, who doesn't want to go to the Korean War, and he ends up getting to attend a small college in Ohio. Uh, he falls in love with Sarah Gadden, who I totally understand because I'm completely in love with Sarah Gadden. She's she's so gorgeous. I keep saying, keep an eye on her. She's going to be the next one of the next big stars. She's just got that je ne sais quoi about her that, that Scarlett Johansson had, where you're just like, damn, you just have a glow about you. I think you're going places. Anyway, enough of my geeking out no, on Sarah she's Gadden. actually one of the best parts of this she's movie. A, she's a, the but, trickiest part. But she's like, you know, a wasp there, you know, and he's in she's love, a, a Jewish guy in love with this beautiful blue-eyed blonde yeah, chick but they from a wealthy the, family. They turn the the tables on that too because she turns out not to be the uh, beautiful, you know, girl next door type that she at first appears. Yeah, to. I mean, their whole relationship when you know he gets, you know, he's like, I want that, I'm going to have that, and ends up being made complicated when on their first date she goes down on him in the car afterwards, and he immediately goes into judgy mode, right? About like, well, what what kind of girl is this who would do that? You're like, well, and I, I'm watching the movie going, well, what kind of guy are you who wouldn't have stopped her then? Yeah. <laughs> and, but and then, but know, this does take place, uh, you know, a, a while ago. Yeah, and, you know, everyone's very judgmental. This is, and again, you're right. This is a very internal type novel. It's hard to do. Uh, James Seamus, who is usually, this is his directorial debut, James Seamus, who is also the uh, the frequent screenwriter uh, for Ang Lee. Uh, this is his first time uh, directing a film of his own, which he also uh, wrote the screenplay. So it feels like it's very faithful to the book mm-hmm. and... It has that sort of dry quality. This is not a bad movie. This is no. classy all the way. It's not a bad movie, it but, it, feels, but you yeah, constantly lacking. feel like you're missing something. Right. And there's only a few moments where it really comes to life. I mean, there's it's pretty heavy-handed. There's a scene where uh, Marcus gets into a confrontation. Marcus not only is a Jewish in a very white, uh, very Christian, uh, small-town college, where the kind where the students are required to go to chapel yeah. every day, but he's also an angry atheist. But he's also angry atheistic, and you know uh, the kind of kid who's going to quote you know Bertrand Russell to his dean, which I thought was actually the high which, highlight. Which of this is the film, best scene because finally this movie works when you have two handers. At its best, it's a series of two handers when p- characters actually stop and like talk to one another. And now there is, you know, a lot of voiceover. They're judicious with it. They don't abuse it. So they try to capture some of the inner monologue that's going through the When you're doing Philip Roth, there's going to be some voiceover. But here's the problem (laughs) that I think some people are going to hit with this movie. Because, you know, and I I have not read this novel. So I had to go and do a little research just to confirm that I heard this movie actually had me rewind at one moment. Because I heard something. And I wasn't sure if I heard the right thing. It's done in a voiceover, and about halfway through this movie, uh, they drop a fact that kind of forces you to re-look at the whole thing. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to spoil that for you here because I think it's worth watching. Uh, but depending on how you view it, it's either going to be a dirty trick that hmm. they pull on you that's just kind of a gimmick. Or it's a good idea that the filmmakers never develop further. I don't know if Roth develops it further in his novel. I have to assume he does. It feels like the filmmakers put it in there because, well, it's in the novel. It's kind of important. We have to. But then we don't really do anything with this enormous piece of information that they just casually let slip in a voiceover. Where this movie works is in the performances between the characters. And as far as that goes, I think it's good. But it's not great. It's, it's not essential. It's just solid. It's not essential. I just I feel like it's just the nature of Roth stuff that yeah. it's really hard to get across what makes it so good in a filmed form. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, a it's, for effort. Yeah, a for effort for sure, and definitely one of the better of the adaptations of Roth's works. Which I I haven't seen them all, but from what I'm told, almost none of them are really worth watching. Yeah, you I know, and certainly the Human Stain, which is bad. Nah, the book is great. The movie, not yeah. so much. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this is it's got an EPK making of it's really short, and then a few interviews uh, with the director. But hey, I mean, if you're a big Roth fan, this is probably something you're going to check out regardless of what we tell you about it. Uh, and it's okay. It's good performances. It's not bad. Yeah. It's just not as good as they hoped it was going to be. Now, a movie a lot of people loved that I personally thought was the driest, most drawn-out, boring film we saw this week was The Childhood of a Leader. This is has uh, Art Snob 101 written all over it. Yeah, it the does. one thing about this movie that is tremendous is the score. Yeah, Scott Walker. Uh, oh, my God. If you know anything about Scott Walker, he's he's out there. This is like a tribute to Bernard Herrmann almost. Pretty much. I mean, this is actually the most accessible thing that Scott Walker has ever done. It's it's so good, the score, that I was like... I, there was a point I realized I was only watching this film still to keep listening to when his score would come up again. Because, well, because it, it doesn't work really as... A, I mean, yes, there's obviously dialogue, but this is a movie that's very image and sound-driven. Uh this is set in a pseudo-fictional uh, Europe in between. After World War I, uh, we see a young boy. He lives with his parents. His father is an American diplomat. Liam Cunningham Liam from Cunningham, Game of Thrones. Uh, Sir Davos himself, playing a surprisingly good American accent. I'd never heard him do that before. Uh, and they're never really identified. It's just the mother, the father, and this little kid. Uh, who is just a hellraiser? Yeah, who don't? He's this beautiful, angelic little child with golden locks. He looks like a little angel, like it would be hanging on a Christmas tree ornament. And of course, he turns out to be basically, you know, literally Hitler 2.0. Yeah, I mean, the film even like comes to a point where it's like, in case you know, the title didn't tell you what right. it was, has to spell out for you by showing him as an adult that, yeah, for all extents and purposes, this kid grew up, grew up to be Hitler. Yeah, not there, literally Hitler, no, but no, no. Difference. If you look at his design, and, and okay. So for some of you, some of you might pick this movie up because you go, oh, Robert Pattinson's in it. Look, I think this is a good movie. I think I liked it a lot more than Chris. I hated it. I think it's beautiful <laughs> to look at. It looks great. It's an important topic even to this day. And it's an interesting structure in that you're not really given any deep psychology. But, but it's this not is, it's not an important topic because it's not a, literally about Hitler. No, this, 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 whole, is, this is where this was leading up to my criticism of the film. Because what they do is they've structured the narrative in such a way where it's just a series of little vignettes. And they're labeled the first tantrum, the yeah. second tantrum. You just see a child acting badly. 
and you don't really know why he's speaking out. He's obviously has, you know, an aloof, abusive father. Uh, his mother is very harsh with him. You know, he's got a maid whom he dotes on, but only because she's the person who's nice to him. He hates the village priest and so on. You can't ever really get into this kid. And that's what's kind of frightening for me about this is that he doesn't say, oh, well, if only this had happened, he'd be good. He's like, yeah. no, this kid is strangely scary. Well, the we kid, don't know why. The kid's a great performance, by the way. I mean, it's a good performance from this child actor. It's, it's, you know, unless you think this is a horror film, like something we need to talk about, Kevin, it's, which is terrific. It doesn't go in that but realm, yeah. It's not at all. This you, When I'm watching this, I'm like, this, it's I mean, this kid, is, this kid is acting out. And that's you're watching two hours of a kid acting out. Yeah, and I and not in any terribly interesting way. I was like, okay, so now we spend another half hour watching this leading up to this kid throwing rocks at somebody. Yeah. So what? Well, to me, it, it to me it was just about the banality of evil. That old Hannah Arendt phrase. It's like yeah. you can't, there's nothing you can do to change this kid. You're just simply hopeless. Watch, you're helpless watching, observing this going. Knowing in advance, this is going to be a terrible person. Yeah. And there's nothing we can do to stop him. And all these little things that people go, oh, it's a phase. He's like, no, this is going to build to something. And it builds to Robert Pattinson in what is essentially a cameo. Yeah. Uh, But they put him right on the front of the poster. And here's where my criticism was in that the way he's designed is he kind of look. he's literally a cross between he's got Mussolini's hair. He's got Hitler's. Uh, his mustache is a cross between Hitler and Stalin. He's got a kind of Russian-style jacket. You know, the hanging Roman-style banners with this weird symbol it obviously evoke Nazi banners. I'm like, well, you know, I'm pretty sure that wasn't a flag used by the National Socialist Party after World <laughs> War One, And that wasn't like a fascist in World War Two. To me, it's like... This would have been a much stronger, I thought, if they had put it in a contemporary setting. Yeah. As opposed to going, look, I know that's not how history played out. I know that's not exactly Hitler's story. But I think it's just the idea that there's some people who, you know, go bad somewhere along the way. I liked it a lot more, but I think you're right that the score by Scott Walker really propelled it. And I think some of the cinematography and production design is gorgeous. So visually, I watched it and enjoyed it on that level. So now we're going to, well, we've got to have a martial arts film because, you know, I'm Chris Cox and I love martial arts movies. And and this one is called Judge Archer. This is actually by a guy who's best known as a writer, Heo Feng Zhu, who is best known for writing the tremendous movie The Grandmaster, which is uh, terrific if you've never seen it. I have not. Oh, my God. But, uh, you know, I uh, I hope he was a better writer than director because I was not terribly fond of... Of Judge Archer, I agree with and, you, and partly from the writing perspective. Say, oddly enough, Wong Kar Wai made the Grandmaster, which is a, who is a much better director, <laughs> to be yeah. fair. But um, this particular movie follows this guy who, who when he's a, basically a kid, he and who's with no name ends up getting the name of the previous Judge Archer uh, by saying, the first word you hear will be your name, and it's someone calling out for Judge Archer. Judge Archer lives a difficult existence, both of the older one and the new younger one, as we see when he gets older, of being, you know, basically a Judge Archer. He goes around and settles disputes. Between uh, uh, between various school often, martial arts schools. Yeah, often in an investigative fashion, and he's also a badass from hell, like Archer. 
That's yeah. kind of his whole gig. And the older Archer is like, well, that's really a shame that you, through the situation, are now going to be the new Judge Archer because everyone who's Judge Archer is cursed. Yeah. It's a terrible life and you die terribly, which is not a good way to start your career. And the story here is is very confusing. I, I actually had to go no, online. it's incoherent. I had to go online to figure out what the fuck happened in this movie. I eventually pieced it together. I just had ceased to care by that point. <laughs> you know, there, this movie looks great. It's, it's beautiful gorgeous. looking. gorgeous. Yeah. The fight scenes are fantastic. Excellent fight scenes. A strange, a strange fight scene thing where they do this thing, close-up fighting, where yeah, it's two guys sitting in, chair. in chairs, and they fight to the death just sitting in chairs yeah. the whole time. It's it, very odd. There's a <laughs> lot of great style to this movie, but it's so damn incoherent. There's multiple factions. You don't know why they're fighting. The uh, Our protagonist, the man who eventually becomes Judge Archer, right off the bat, I had a hard time sympathizing for him because he goes insane when, his, uh, when a rival clan uh, rapes his sister. He goes insane. She seems pretty okay. She's like... You know, you should just go get some help, or let me take you to the monastery. And they sort of like, we're going to erase, you know, we're going to erase your identity. And now you climb over this wall, you're healed, the first person yeah, you meet, as you said. Judge and Archer, he bumps yeah. into Judge Archer, uh, who's lying uh, shot in a field somewhere. And, you know, he's like, all right, fine, you're the new Judge Archer. Then we cut to the new Judge Archer, who is beckoned by some woman who has some connection to another clan who, for some reason, she wants him to exact revenge, so he sets up himself as a fruit seller and meets this other guy who is the Lord Protector for another... It's just and goes he gets on distracted and on and on. by a woman he has a crush on who may or may not have been sent to kill him. Yeah. And it's... it's it None of it adds up. Jumps to, back and forth so unnecessarily between time. And I don't mean when he was a kid and an adult. I mean yeah, periods no, I mean, it's like, of the modern day where you're like, what the fuck is happening? They're like, we should go to this village. Okay. We're going to ride in a cart. Let's stop here. Now let's fight. Wait, why are you two fighting? You just She just hired you. Why yeah. are you two fighting I don't, now? I found this whole thing very baffling and con- completely confusing in, in lack of structure. It yeah, just doesn't it, have structure. It, no structure. It's a, it's a mess, which is a shame for all the things that are good about yeah. it. But it's hardly going to be, even for, you know fans like me martial arts films who generally go eh, who cares what the story is as long as the martial arts are good the martial arts are good but there's also not a lot of them no there's not and and it's very slow and long it's so it looks gorgeous it's but yeah can't really recommend it i'm no. afraid uh i did like a little bit better hands of stone although still this is a also ran boxing biopic yeah. about a fascinating guy roberto sure. duran who is one of the greatest boxers who has ever lived no question yeah. who's the guy who finally cast. beat the undefeated uh, sugar ray leonard played here extremely well by I, usher oh, yeah. who is surprised. turning into a pretty solid actor i've been seeing him in a lot of stuff lately and i'm always like damn that guy's actually pretty good he, he took me by surprise in this and <laughs> as did edgar Ram- well edgar ramirez didn't really take me too much by surprise yeah playing roberto I, he's a great duran. actor but he's like yeah. We see him when he's younger and he's become this undefeated, like, small boxing ring champ in Panama who really doesn't like America because his father was an American who abandoned his right. mother. And so he's decided, fuck it's America. set against the backdrop, you know, the Panama, uh, the occupation of Panama, yeah. the Panama Canal. So, yeah, he has a chip against on his shoulder. And uh, Ruben Blades, who is his sort of local manager, promoter, says, you know what? 
If you want to get to the, the next level, yeah. you got to get this guy, Robert De Niro, playing the real-life Ray Arcel, who is yeah. considered to be the greatest boxing trainer of all yeah. time. And again, De Niro is great in this, too. I mean, it, it's great to see him when he shows up and he's engaged in a performance. I mean, okay, Robert De Niro, here's the thing. You put Robert De Niro in a boxing movie, you are immediately going to compare it to Raging Bull. Of it's course. inevitable. And, you know, Robert De Niro playing... A guy who, from the boxing world, who has ties to the mafia, is from New York. Yeah, it's not a huge stretch for him, but no. he's really good in it, as is the whole cast. Um, I, I have to special attention to Anna de Armas, who, who we're going to see again. Yeah, well, tonight. she's turning into a big star real fast because oh, yeah. she's just one of the most beautiful actresses she's, working today. She is just a knockout. Well, this and, is one of my complaints about this movie. I'm like, this woman is gorgeous. And then she promptly has three children in the movie and shows up and she still looks. I'm like, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm, <laughs> you did not just have three children. <laughs> no, I'm you sorry did you did not. Yeah, you know, she she is no a, attempt to make her look. <laughs> the, That's the problem. They don't age them. They they play she she is the wife of Robert Duran, the long-suffering wife of Robert Roberto Duran. And we see them start off as teenagers. And we see them from roughly the age of about 17 to 30. And there's they really don't seem to age convincingly. No, no, they don't but at all. But they're great actors. And that's and one of the they, biggest they, problems with this film is there's a there's a that disconnect yeah. that no one really seems to get any older. It, it, it does make yeah. it feel like the whole movie takes place over like a year or two. When in fact, this is many, many years. <clears throat> What's odd as well about this film is that it focuses so tightly on all the ways and all the times where Brito Duran acted like a complete prick. Right. And ignores the fact that he was actually a pretty solid dude. He gave away giant amount of his wealth to charity to you make sure everyone was fed in his town. Yeah, but it's glossed over. It's, it's glossed barely over. touched on. And they, the movie treats him like he was just an unrepentant, misanthrope party guy. And yeah. that's not really who Roberto Duran was. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's an odd choice. It, it feels like, again, like I said, they don't really do a good job of selling uh, the, the span of time. And it does feel like they try to pack in a whole bunch of subplots and characters. And that's where it kind of suffers. It does feel a little bit... This is the other movie, I would say, tonight that is kind of scorsese light, And that's not just because De Niro's in it. Uh, you know, they, they do that option like we're going to use pop tunes. We're going to be sure. fast camera work. You know, we're going to do all these sort of tricks in the boxing ring. You know, the slow motion and all that but, stuff. But well-filmed it, fights, it I thought. It all works great. But it's like, I've seen it before. Mm -hmm. This feels formulaic. The character, you know, the real man is more interesting than the story that yeah. he inspired, unfortunately. Uh, um, but it's I, not bad. I do give points for Edgar Ramirez, who really learned how to fight yeah. for this I mean, thing. He said he I, went down to Panama for like a year and like studied with Duran's son and in those gyms. And you watch these fighting scenes and you're like, wow, that's really, those are good fights. And Usher himself trained Usher with himself Sugar Ray Leonard. did a great job in here. And playing, you know, the, the charming, the guy, the boxer everybody loved, Sugar Ray Leonard, yeah. who was just the, the sweetest guy. And apparently. you see how Ramirez breaks him down psychologically yeah. by being a total ass. Yeah, by being the unbelievable prick yeah. to, to basically trick him into getting angry. Yeah, basically going in and, and smack it, talking his, about his wife and calling her a bitch. And, of yeah. course, you know, Sugar Ray Leonard, who's like this, I'm a nice guy. And, you know, suddenly he's like, Ugh, you know, yeah, and he, he psychologically, you know, 
throws him off balance, and now he's just in a rage. Well, because the Roberto Duran's in, in this movie anyway. I can't speak to not having just read a biography or anything into real life, but they present like his biggest flaw is that he's not really a strategy fighter. No, he's, he's not. one of those guys who's got great instincts, and he's powerful, and he will knock you on your ass so fast you don't know what happened, which is how he did most of his career. But when he's up against Sugar Ray Leonard, Sugar Ray Leonard is totally the thinking strategic fighter, yeah. the dancer, the dancer, you know, and he can't fight that. And, yeah, and no. so instead, he says, well, I'm going to make this guy so mad he comes to me on my terms. Exactly. You know, and it's in, that's one of the more interesting things going on here, but even that's not explored as interestingly as it should no. be. This is like I said, it's an also-ran. It's got good stuff about it. It's got good performances. The fights are well done, but it's just ultimately not that interesting of a boxing film. It's no. definitely not going to be a contender, if you will, with the all-times. Uh, there's a 23-minute documentary uh, uh, about the the history of Duran and a look really at the film and how they prepared. Of. There's uh, about almost 11 minutes of deleted scenes and a few music videos uh, from Usher and Ruben Blades. Blades? Blades? I believe it's Blades. Is Blades? Okay. But, you know, in America, he's Ruben Blades. Which, yeah. one thing that is interesting, I should just point out that the one moment that I thought was genuinely interesting in this movie was it's established that, you know, uh, Duran really, really is pissed off at America and Americans. And when he finally gets to fight Sugar Ray Leonard, to him... Sugar Ray Leonard is like this symbol of America. Right. And we actually, it, it's obviously a double... But we see uh, uh, Ray Charles singing, you know, his classic rendition of America the Beautiful. And it is the only time I can think of where I have seen uh, a, a black man represent the evil America and Ray Charles's uh, America the Beautiful used somewhat ironically. It's this yeah. weird, dark twist to it. But again... It's just one of many subplots that gets raised and then gets kind of pushed aside. Whoever that was playing Ray Charles looked exactly like him. Sure. Oh, I my mean, God. Very brief shots of him, but yeah, it worked. Uh, next up is Coffee and Cigarettes. This is bringing back an older film from 2003 mm -hmm. by Jim Jarmusch, which seems appropriate because he's got two movies that actually came out this year. Both the, we'll get to review it soon, I can't wait, Gimme Danger, his documentary about Iggy, Iggy Pop and yeah. the Stooges. Oh, God, I can't wait for that one. I'm so excited. And then Patterson, which just came out in theaters, and I actually enjoyed quite a bit. Um, or it's about to come out in theaters. You'll, you will, we'll have our review up. Uh, Coffee and Cigarettes was an unusual film for Jarmusch because it's actually an anthology and I would say my least favorite of Jarmusch's films, if yeah. only that it's just kind of an experiment for fun that he made over the series of like more than a decade while he yeah, was filming his other movies where he basically just called in his friends or people who were working on other films that he was doing at the time and had them do little you know, three to ten minute shorts of them meeting at cafes or wherever, drinking coffee and coffee smoking and cigarettes. Coffee and cigarettes are the only sort of unif – there's some unifying themes about – like twin, there's a piece, a couple pieces yeah. of dialogue that get recycled. But nothing really mean. None of it, it, it means, means anything. It's just an in joke, and it's okay. There's cute parts to this. Um, what you've got is you've got the the segments are strange to meet you with Roberto Benigni and Stephen Wright. Where which actually, although it, it's funny, Stephen Wright is just doing his bit, it, and you know? Roberto Benigni is pretty much just doing his. I mean, it's that's the most dispensable one, I think. Uh, you have twins uh, featuring real life brother and sister Joe. Joe 
Joey Lee and Sink Lee, uh, and then Steve Buscemi as the waiter who comes in and starts talking to them about Elvis Presley's evil twin. Uh, somewhere in California. This is actually the best one. Yeah, this actually world. won the short film Palm Door at the Cannes Film Festival with Iggy Pop and Tom Waits in a remarkably awkward conversation with them playing themselves, yeah. excited to meet each other, but finding out they really have nothing and, in and common. And almost all of the celebrities are playing themselves. Yes. Uh, those things will kill you with uh, old-timers Joseph Regano and Vinnie Vela, uh, who are just talking about the dangers of smoking, pretty much. There's Renee with uh, Renee French, who's really not an actress. She's just a model who's friends with Jarmouche, but she's gorgeous, who is... Uh, and this is the most boring one, because nothing yeah, happens. She's not, just literally nothing reading happens. a magazine and a waiter who is a little too eager to be of service, but yeah. not to the point where it's amusing. There's no problem with Alex Discuss and Isaac... Isaac DiBancole. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I'm saying that right or not. There's Cousins with Kate Blanchett. I actually enjoyed this one where she plays one both herself ones. and a fictional... She plays herself and a fictional cousin yeah. who's kind of like... You think you're too good for you th- for for me, don't you? Type of thing, yeah. you know. Uh, there's Jack shows Meg his Tesla coil, which is Jack and Meg White. Yeah, and, and it's. I actually thought this was cute. It was cute. Um, it also is it. Uh, uh, has a second appearance briefly of uh, what's his name, um, the jo- Joy Lee, who we saw mm-hmm. in the earlier segment. There's cousins with Alfred Molina and Steve Coogan having, you know, they're playing each other, and Steve Coogan is like really not interested in this conver- in, in meeting this guy, but I guess he did it because somebody told him he should, and then finds out that Alfred Molina actually is friends with somebody really famous during yeah. a phone call and has to turn around. And, suddenly and the pretend whole thing to be is Alfred Molina going, isn't it great? We're at, he's done some genealogical researches. We're actually cousins. We're family. Yeah. We could be friends. And, you know, he's like, ah, yeah, I don't really. Uh, yeah. He's just kind of putting him off until you're right. Until, you know, he gets a call and realizes, oh, I should have been nice to this guy. And then the most talked about one from this is Delirium uh, yeah. because it, it's actually a funny bit. With, funny bit. You've got, uh, uh, I never, I know Riza, but are you supposed to say Giza with GZA? I, I don't even have. know. Uh, from the Wu-Tang Clan, and they're drinking their caffeine-free herbal tea, as they will, and their waiter comes over, and it's Bill Murray playing Bill Murray, and they're like, it's funny because they keep referring it's to him Bill as Bill Murray, Murray and no, it's this running gag. You that, should be drinking all that coffee, yeah, Bill Murray. Bill Murray is just drinking coffee right out of the <laughs> coffee urn. You know, he's you like, don't look too good, Bill Murray. You all right? <laughs> it's it's kind of funny. It goes on maybe about a minute or two too yeah, long, it but it's cute. And then it ends with champagne with William Rice and Taylor Mead, uh, basically just talking about nostalgia. Um, this is okay. Yeah, it's more Jim Jarmusch completists only. I mean, there's two or three of these that are worth seeing, but most of them are just kind of dull and pointless. So 90s to me. Yeah, it's really. I mean, it was shot in the 90s, but yeah, it's it's a. You know, if you can find a copy of this cheap and you're already a Jarmouche fan, hey, why not add yeah. it to your collection? But it's definitely the, an afterthought. It's a bonus feature on a Jim Jarmouche film. Uh, but what isn't a bonus feature is one of the greatest movies ever made. Yeah. Certainly one of Scorsese's greatest. And that is the 40th anniversary, Jesus, we're old, of yeah. Taxi Driver. Um, this, of course, has been released and re-released uh. and re-released and re-released. And this is the latest re-release that is Adding only one new thing yeah. to w- the previously existing wonderful Digibook edition. The Digibook that came out in 2011, which is That's the must-buy edition. Oh, yeah. This and, is- and I would actually say that is a more must-buy than this one is because, oh, it's because the quality of the packaging that's packaging, in it and everything. It lobby cards. Yeah. It had a few extra special features. This basically ports over all, almost all of the special features. And believe me, you're getting a lot of stuff. Yeah. This just adds a Tribeca Film Festival 40th anniversary Q&A, which is 
is 42 Minutes with Scorsese, writer Paul Schrader, producer Michael Phillips, Rob De Niro, Jodie Foster, Sybil Shepard, and Harvey yeah. Keitel, which is interesting. It is interesting. On stage, but most of this is actually also, the stories in here are also covered in the doc- you, make documentary and stuff. There's nothing there that they have, there are no anecdotes they tell that you cannot get from some other source already. Probably on the same disc. But this is only for people who don't already own it. Yeah, make no, yeah, make no mistake. Taxi Driver, if you've never it's seen essential. it, you've got, you have to watch it. I mean, you have to make time to watch in, it. If you any, don't already own a copy, sure, this one will yeah. do as, as well as anything. It's, it's a, I mean, if the digital hadn't come out, I'd say this is the definitive edition of yeah, this film. I mean, honestly, it's the exact same transfer of video and audio, everything. which is gorgeous and perfect. But, you know, I, any the, other time, this would be undisputably the pick of the week. But I can't recommend it that highly because chances are you already have this. Yeah. And if you do have the 2011 version in the beautiful sort of yellow, taxi yellow digibook, mm-hmm. that is the best version. If you don't, absolutely pick it up. You're still going to get a good value. Uh, yeah. And uh, it, like but you this said, is it's a double all dip. those other, yeah, it is a double dip. There are all those other features from the previous one are on here, which is a lot of solid, solid yeah. stuff, a really good commentary track, two commentary yeah. or three commentary three. tracks. Sorry. I mean, this is owning this movie is essential to a serious film collector. And yeah, I mean, if you're as picky as I am and you really love that digit book, I'm like, I prefer that version just for that. But, um, yeah, this is, this is great. It makes a good present for dad. Uh, and then we have another re-release, which is Mad Max Fury Road Blood and Chrome Edition. Now, this is something the director has talked about. George Miller's talked about wanting to do and get released for a while. In fact, he actually fought to try and have the film get two dis- theatrical distributions, both the color version and the black and white yeah. version, which he kind of discovered by accident. It was never his intention to make this movie in black and white. It wasn't until he was watching it after the fact in, like, you know, the, the dailies that he was like, wow, I love the way this looks like this. And has been saying for Ever, one way or the other, you guys are going to get to see it, and that's what this is. Yeah. It's it's the original Blu-ray packaged with a new Blu-ray of Fury Road. Sort of like that's in black Darabont and white. They did with the Mist, exactly like you that, know, and like, which is you know, fun. Get them both. If you're one of those people, like I really want to see what that that's like, or you don't previously already own Fury Road. I mean, why not? This has got the full or you original Blu-ray on Fury it as well, Road and just turn the color off on your TV. But sure, I suppose you could do you that. Could as well. do that. I don't know if it's been modified or tweaked in any way to maximize that. I'm sure it's not as simple as simply desaturating it. But, you know, this is still, in my opinion, one of the best movies of the previous year. It's a return to form for Frank Miller. And it's a great movie, as far as I'm concerned, in black or white or color. But in color, I thought it was particularly good. Yeah, the only thing you're missing here that didn't come, that came with the previous edition is this does not have a digital copy, an ultraviolet yeah. digital copy. If you care about that, then obviously. Why the hell would you want to watch this movie on your phone anyway? Come well, on. no, I mean, I or use, your... I actually use those because they're great when, with the collection the size of mine. And I'm I like, I don't feel, know what yeah. I feel like watching. So I just put on Voodoo and like flip through all oh, my digital copies and stuff. And sense. you're like, oh, well, there you go. And it looks 1080p. And, but um, but I get it. This, the only extra on here is, uh, Miller does an introduction to the Blood and Chrome version that's only about a minute and a half. And other than that, it's all the same bonus features. It's probably just him one. saying, I imagine, there's nothing wrong with your disc. <laughs> it's supposed to look like this. Yeah, don't exactly. freak out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. uh, why? What's wrong? My TV is broken. No, no, no. Don't try to return it to Best Buy. It's fine. All right. So now we move on to a odd little horror film uh, that is Idil. called Killbillies. Or Killbillies. <laughs> that is notable for being the first horror movie made in Slovenia. Yes. And all things considered, 
it's not a bad horror film no, it's a solid I, for, for something movie. as dumb as it looks it, which is mutated hicks who kidnap uh, um two models and their photographer who are out on a jaunt into the hill country to uh have take photos in a, a photogenic location yeah they're abducted the basically the one and the bulk of this film and what the best part of this film is the one girl who gets away and then is a chase that goes on for a yeah. while as one of the guys is trying to catch her that's remarkable Slow burn. That's remarkably well done and creepy, and it is. It's helped a lot by a good score. Yeah, I mean this. This is the for me now. The original title of this, I believe, was called the Idyll or the Idyll, you know, like which is like a journey, a wandering. And for the American release, I just imagine the English language release. It's got the much more prosaic, dorky sounding Kill Billy, which is a terrible title, which you know makes it sound stupider than it is. But make no mistake, this is very much in the exploitation wheelhouse, except it has a rather novel location. It's, it's kind of Hills Have Eyes meets Texas Chainsaw yeah, Massacre set, set in Europe. Yeah, <laughs> you know, imagine like, you know, instead of Julie Andrews singing, you know, Sound of Music, in that same environment, only with Killbillies. Now, there is, Slovenia is kind of like somewhere in between Austria. It's this really weird, near Czechoslovakia. And I'm sure that for... A native audience, it plays a lot better because I uh-huh. suspect there are certain themes and issues that get raised that mean a lot more to them than they do to us. But there is a sort of subplot about, you know, uh, a kind of mutual exploitation that's going on between the rural people who are obviously living in these ancient villages mm-hmm. that, you know, the modern world has bypassed. And they're kind of also in cahoots with like these sleazy guys from the big city. And these kids, well, not kids, but these models and their entourage get trapped in the middle of this. There's some really good ideas in here that I don't think they really go far enough with, you know. But it feels like it's tagged on there just to kind of add some relevance to it. Yeah. It's not a fun movie. It's not like a fun horror. It tries to, but the serious horror aspect of it i don't think really delivers either but hey it's their first major you know and it's the first feature film, film from director tomas gorkic yeah. who i would say this is a promising debut absolutely um there's some really interesting things going on in this film the sound design in general is yeah. really good and scary uh the actors i think turn in a pretty reasonably solid job yeah, despite absolutely. some really goofy hillbilly makeup on the hillbillies well, the thing is the, all of the hillbillies are played really broadly. I yeah. mean, these aren't like just simple full rural. Full. I mean, this is kind of stuff that, you know, if you had done it in like, say, uh, the folks in deliverance seem low key. Okay. Compared to these guys who are <laughs> practically mutants. Now I will say I wasn't crazy with the coda, the very, very, very yeah. end. I was like, seriously, that's really lazy. See, this is another thing where it, it, it it has this really mean, nasty edge to it yeah. that, you know, it is totally unforgiving and bleak. And I do think they do drop a very – one of the better production design elements in this film is we constantly see this old family seal. And we assume that this is a really ancient family who's mm-hmm. lived there forever. And there's also a product, which I won't ruin. There's a product that we see in the city that – that is related to these groups, but they don't use that seal. It's just this weird little symbol. I'm like, oh, you should have used the family crest. That should have been on that prop. But anyway, that's a very minor thing that you won't catch unless you see this movie, and you may not even want to. But it's not bad. Yeah, for real horror aficionados, this one is worth seeking out the check. And it's a good calling but, card for a new director. Yeah. 
Uh, moving on to older horror, coming our Arrow releases film of this week is their fix-up of the, uh, what is the it, 1984 yeah. film, The Initiation. It's really only notable that it was Daphne Zuniga's first leading yeah. role in a film, um, who never really had that much of a career anyway, but yeah. she was more notable as a television actress than anything right. else, but she had her time in the sun. Uh, she plays a university stu- student who keeps having this reoccurring nightmare where this guy is burning to death inside of her home when she's a little kid. She walks into her parents' bedroom and sees this guy burning to death. She has no idea what this is meaning. She's about to take place in her sorority's initi- uh, initiation ritual, thus the title, yeah. which ends up b- being basically her and a group of other pledges have to break into her rich dad's huge department store after hours to hang out and party and guess what happens yeah there's a killer in there somewhere that starts taking out the kids and who could it be uh, the mystery there is and it, it's know, i will say when it gets to the very end of the solution i was like well that was fun yeah. but most of this is a very by the numbers 80s slasher uh, the, yeah there's nothing in here uh, again this is another arrow release that I, you know, I always give them props for putting together a good package, and, and that's no different here. I think the special features that exist, such as they are, uh, they're better than this movie, frankly, deserves. Well, yeah, but that's the thing now, you know, right now, like with companies like Vinegar Syndrome and yeah, Arrow and Shot, uh, Shot Factory, but to me, they're putting out films that have an audience that loves them. They're just very niche. Is, and, I'm not sure who loves this. I mean, was there, yeah. I, I assume somebody was crying out for this. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, but just because your film has been sitting on a VHS tape at the bottom of the discount right. bin for 40 years, that doesn't automatically qualify. There's it still as a so cult many hit. better films that deserve the kind of yeah. love and attention that this movie is in fact given there's probably some smart things potentially in this movie mm-hmm. i mean it does feature a uh, clue Gulliger and yeah. vera miles so they have some genre stalwarts in there and there's a theme that could have been explored in a kind of interesting psychosexual hitchcockian way but that would be that would involve smart filmmakers and there's <laughs> nothing done smart here uh the best thing about zuniga's performance i can't even talk about because it gives too much away yeah uh but again i can see how somebody could have done something very smart and interesting with these themes and they don't play out that way uh one thing i did find interesting because you do have a commentary and you do have interviews with the writer mm-hmm. uh the thing i found most interesting is because it starts off promisingly and there's some really good shots in this movie given its age and you know obvious low budget yeah and the writer revealed to me why that happened. He said, well, you know, we had a director who they don't mention by name. And he said, yeah, after about a week, the producers realized, well, thanks to this guy, we're now two weeks behind schedule. So they <laughs> fired him. But all the stuff he shot was really good. And that's why it was taking so long. So they brought in a TV director who's like, yeah, we're going to just shoot 10 pages a day and get through this. You know, so it's a shame. I'm like. Yeah, that w- they would have gone over budget, but I'll bet you if they'd kept that original director, this would have been a much better movie. If I'm not mistaken, I want to say this came out the same weekend as Nightmare on Elm Street, and I believe that is the case. It, it and sure what they still to this era. day blame the the film like like yeah yeah it was the same it, it was in December 1984, but Nightmare on Elm Street came out, which of course dominated yeah. the conversation. Because and this it just, was a much better movie, and this one just kind of faded from memory. Yeah, ultimately. Uh, anyway, let's move on to the next one, which is one of the films a lot of people are hailing as one of the best horror films of the year, oh, which yeah. is Don't okay. Breathe. This is directed by Fede Alvarez, who did the much unfairly maligned remake of The Evil Dead. I although might have to not give that a second. Technically, chance. in a remake, it's technically a another 
another story that just happens to strongly resemble the first one. Um, well, they've said that one? if they continue that, if they go that like they may bring in elements of that into the television show to show, no, those were other people who had to deal with the situation as well. He always said when they originally planned on doing more movies that they would tie back into the rest of the Evil Dead universe and show that was not a remake. Anyway, that has nothing to do with Don't Breathe except that that it's the same director who I actually am really coming to love, starring Jane Levy, who's kind of becoming a new scream queen these days. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She was very good at this. Yeah, it's her, Dylan Minnette, and Daniel Zavato, who are three Detroit... Detroit delinquents who all are in bad family and home situations who are scraping by and saving money to escape their crappy town. Except for the one kid who's only in it because he loves the girl. True. Uh, Whose daddy owns the security company, which is how they are able to to break into houses. And the problem is uh, they get leads from the person who buys the stolen goods, but they find out about one that's supposed to, like, this house in an abandoned Detroit neighborhood with a blind army veteran living in it, uh, Stephen Lang. Living off a big settlement from his yeah, daughter's wrongful death. Somewhere in there, there's got to be $300,000. And they get in there, and uh, they decide to try and rob the house with the blind man still in it, because they're figuring, well, he's blind, we'll sneak around him. And unfortunately, they... Uh, end up getting caught by the blind man himself who is like got this house tricked out with traps and shutters and not traps in a it's in a just, silly way it's more that you know he can see and they can't it's it's just a house that it doesn't feel like a particularly you know specially designed house it's just yeah. that when all the lights are off he can get around there. He knows the place, and yeah. he doesn't rely on his he's eyes. He's got various weapons around, yeah. stashed this around is the guy there. Who's prepared. And he's got a badass, mean fucking dog. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. The, as and in, an almost wordless performance, and, too, you know, I mean, even Lang. Like, to, the only way you can really make it seem frightening is right off the bat, he just brutally murders one of the kids. Yeah. So you've got the, the girl... And the kid who secretly loves the girl, uh, trying to survive and get out of this fucking place while also still trying to find the money. I mean, yeah, trying to not breathe. Because, you know, there's a few moments in this where I'm like, how is it that this guy doesn't know they're in there? But for the most part, they play that really well. Where they try to be very still, and this guy is walking right past him. It's a great sort of audience moment, because you're all going, oh, wait, he's right behind you. Don't don't move. He's right there. Now, there is a startling third act reveal there is that i knew lose some people which i knew which did i know a lot of people who it took them so far out of this film they were like fuck this movie i did not have that problem whatsoever i didn't have a problem with it uh but also i just kind of assume like look you don't cast stephen lang in this role and then expect him to just be this poor victim Mm -hmm. as we find out very quickly this guy is very very capable he is a worthy adversary yes he's a good horror villain in a way but you could also look at it in a way that well okay he has his reasons well alvarez is a little extreme said basically like you know, horror villains are always somebody who have an extra something, like they're yeah. a super genius or they have some, they're super strong. What if we made our villain, took our villain and took something away from him right. and then made that and put the characters in a situation where that that disability was his advantage? The beauty of this film is its simplicity. Yeah. It's break into a house. Holy shit, we're locked in the house. How do we escape from a guy who is blind? Mm-hmm. That's really all the movie is, which is why I think why some people get lo- get lost in the third act. Because 
it's been so elemental up to then mm-hmm. to bring in this other element suddenly like, okay, now you're getting a little too complicated. You're adding way too many ingredients to what was a very simple, classic kind of dish. But it does really work. And what really impressed me, because there's some good special features on here too, because things I wasn't aware of, they did shoot in Detroit uh, for the exteriors, but they built this entire house, and I believe it was in Romania. Probably just for budgetary reasons. Yeah, probably. This house, they built exterior and interior. The house is a character in the movie, and it's beautifully designed. It's this creepy, fun house where, you know, a crazy blind man could easily move about. Where it really comes to life for me is when there is a sequence in the basement. This movie does something I've never seen any other movie do, uh, because cinematic darkness is so hard to do. We've already, we've all been used to that convention of, okay, we know it's not pitch black. There's always going to be a little bit of light and the characters just have to pretend like they can't really see. However, they do something that's not this cheap, it's not the cheap, obvious, you know, night vision effect. It's a very beautiful, it's kind stylized of a gray look. grayscale effect. Yeah, but also with punctuations of color yeah. at certain moments. And it's really smart. And just because... I've never seen it done that way before. And, you know, to do something that has been done a bazillion times before and add something fresh to it, that's a rare thing. Remarkable. Uh, And remarkably scary sequence you're talking about. Absolutely. Uh, And as you said, this came with audio commentary from Fede Alvarez, the writer, and Stephen Lang. Uh, There's a few featurettes, including like much more looks at the house and how they put it together. And then there's about 15 and a half minutes of deleted scenes which with optional commentary from the director. I actually thought this is a a very solid horror film. Absolutely. I felt bad for people I know who really didn't like it who fell out of it because I'm like – I don't understand. I mean, like, you were like, well, how could that possibly? It's like, stop and think about the ways in which it could be possible, considering what we've seen from this guy, and you'll probably stop. I I think that's the moment where it, for some people, it did jump the shark, and I think it maybe went a little too far. But, you know, it was okay. Uh, It was a good journey till they got there. Another film we also did a theatrical release review for that's coming out on Blu-ray is War Dogs. This is director Todd Phillips, who's primarily known for party films like Road Trip, Old School, The Hangover Movies, uh, Due Date. And this one is... His attempt to do something maybe a little more serious, but it still kind of plays out more or less like a cross between his party movies and Goodfellas. This was the other Scorsese light film. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's two characters who, frankly, neither of them are particularly likable. Yeah. Uh, you've got uh, 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 Miles Teller and uh, Jonah Hill. I was about to yeah, call him Josh Hill. Jonah up- Hill, who is Jonah Hill in a, in a Scorsese movie, Jonah Hill would be... The Joe Pesci character. Well, he already was yeah, in well, Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, I mean, he <laughs> was know? basically the guy that is a little bit unhinged, who's a little bit crazy. It's about two guys who went to junior high school. They were best friends. They haven't seen one another in years. Miles Teller is, uh, again, this is uh, another Aramis again, uh, the beautifully, completely unrealistic, childbearing supermodel actress. Uh, Again, she is a the beautiful, long-suffering girlfriend of Miles Teller. Yeah, Anna Dem- Armas, once again. He, he's got a baby on the way. He's a massage therapist. Things look really bleak for him. Into his life comes his old friend who says, Hey, I'm making lots of money. How are you doing that? I sell guns. 
And before long, he's talked himself into the company. Yeah, they found a. He's basically found a loophole with the government, which lets him be able to yeah. sell large quantities of weapons right. and, uh, uh, legally, but on the ed- right on the edge, right. right in the gray area. Well, this of is legal. based on a true story, and yes. again, which means it's probably ninety percent of it's probably bullshit. But there's <laughs> there's you know some elements to it that are true. That uh, in this sort of aftermath of the Iraq War and the whole uh, Dick Cheney Halliburton kind of scuttlebutt there, they said, you know what? Okay, fine. We can't have, you know, all these contracts going to one single bidder. We're going to make it fair. So we're going to put all of these bids for the Army and the the, uh, the armed services, we're going to put them online and basically a kind of uh, – eBay's the wrong term. It's basically a master bidder's list yeah. going, this is open to anyone in the public. Anybody who can provide a service and is willing to bid on this contract, you are free to do so. These guys have figured out by lowballing the competition and going for the small, low-hanging fruit, mm-hmm. they suddenly start making some really good sales. But then, of course, everything goes wrong goes when wrong. their eyes get too big for, and for their stomachs, and they decide to take on a huge deal that's going to involve doing it illegally yeah. to, to provide it, it the giant It starts off order. with like, well, you know, there's this loophole that we can exploit to, well, now we can bend the rules to where, holy shit, we are going to have to just break the law. And, you know, in a, it's kind of, it, it, it would kind of be like a sort of loss of innocence of the Miles Teller character, except he never seems particularly innocent. No, he's, this is the problem. He's, he's not the, a very engaging he, character. He's the nice guy, but not in an engaging way. Yeah. He's not terribly innocent. Whereas, uh, whereas and the Jonah Hill Jonah character, character is so extreme. He's you just know he's practically go a psychopath. Yeah, you just know these guys are going to eventually butt heads together, and it's about that the how that friendship unravels and how their schemes unravel. But that part should have been better than what it was, it which is why the biggest flaw here is that. It's that is not you're not engaged with their relationship whatsoever no. in a movie that's hanging on that. It, how it does work is there's definitely some very tense moments, especially as they go into their like dangerous scheme. Yeah. Um, there's some very funny moments in here sure. as well. Jonah Hill getting to play it to the rafters, chew up all the scenery in sight is obviously having a good time. And it's yeah. fun to watch Jonah Hill when he's having that much fun. Bradley Cooper has a fun but small role in yeah. here as a dangerous to guy on the terrorist watch list that they get involved with uh it's fun but it's also like you said it's scorsese very light yeah you know this is one of quite a few films i would even describe in that way the where you're like yeah it's not bad it's watchable but you who's know, but, gonna remember it in 10 in years scorsese at his best you kind of feel like the moral rot you mm-hmm. realize okay even when the characters aren't terribly good but you're there's some kind of believable tension between those characters but i agree that the jonah hill character is so extreme and the miles teller character is so bland you never really believe that french they have good chemistry but when the when the inevitable happens it it doesn't feel inevitable it it just feels like oh yeah well of course that's going to happen because yeah that's what the plot dictates yeah um, there's a few bonus features, which are basically EPKs, but one of them actually interviews the real David Packhouse, who's Miles T- Teller's character, who actually has a small part in the film, yeah. and then the reporter who wrote the Rolling Stone article that inspired the script, and, and then the weirdest God. extra ever, yeah. yeah, an animated version of, short version of the story of War Dogs that has singing rats it, taking the it, place it, of the two like, main characters. I suspect strongly that this was originally going to be, this was part probably of the like film. an animatic for yeah. like a rough sequence, 
in the film. Or, an may, animated se- or maybe a credit sequence or yeah, something. Yeah, but they then ditched it wisely because it's not very good. It's weird. Imagine like a schoolhouse rock version of going, this is how you illegally bid contracts, you know? <laughs> yes, yeah. It, it, it's trying to be educational and kind of cutesy at the same time, which is kind of the problem with the movie in general. Well, next up and last for this week is my personal pick of the week. And in fact, it's in my top five for the entire year is the tremendous neo-Western heist film, Hell or High Water. I'm going to rephrase what I said earlier because, mind you, I saw this in two massive blocks between the holidays. Mm. So I keep thinking of these as two sets. But you're right. This was my pick of the week. Okay, good. We can agree on that. Up to, in the first block, it was Morris from America. Then we got to this, and I literally only saw this like two days ago. And this is one of those ones that I did not expect it to be anywhere near as good as it was, and I don't think anybody did, from director David McKenzie, who really has done stuff. I I don't even know if I've seen any of his other films. I don't think I ever have. But it was one of those came-out-of-nowhere movies. Scottish indie director. You've got Chris Pine, uh, who, of course, has been playing uh, um, uh, Captain Kirk, and has definitely been taking more of the path of, like, big movies, and Ben Foster, who you never know what you're going to see in. He yeah. pops up at any different level of things. And, and, then, Jeff, and then Jeff Bridges playing uh, yeah. the, every role Jeff Bridges has played for the past 10 years, which is an old, grizzled country guy with guns. Um, so you're like, okay, this is probably going to be another one of those, like, okay, it's it's a southern gothic western that'll be okay. That'll be like, yeah, that was good. And then you'll just kind of forget about it. There's a lot of these coming out lately, some of which have been really good. But this one didn't have a lot telling me this is going to be that movie. It's a modern Western. The thing is, it's actually tied to something. As opposed to just a Western being a kind of sort of generic sort of moral tale of, you know, good guys and bad guys. This is actually set in Texas against the backdrop of a crumbling economy, Mm -hmm. small towns, you know, basically your red state. Trump voting America. And you can easily scoff at those folks if you want until you realize that some of these parts of the country, you know, the economic reform didn't hit them. Mm-hmm. The new jobs didn't go there. And this is you know, focusing on two of the guys whose life has taken a serious downturn yeah. because of this. Chris Pine and Ben Foster, who are brothers. Uh, ben Foster, being the ex-con, just got mm-hmm. out of jail, has talked his brother and going with him to do small cash drawer-only robberies of tiny little banks around Texas on the run to get enough money to basically save their ranch, which because of like a lot of the, the bank loan scandal stuff. mortgage. Yeah. Uh, is is about to be foreclosed on. For pennies on the dollar to And get they're their like, property. fuck that. And meanwhile, they're being chased by two Texas Rangers, Jeff Bridges and Gil Birmingham, yeah. who have a really unusual relationship that at first you're like, I feel like I'm offended by this, because it, but it's so on the surface offensive. I'm obviously got to keep watching. And as you go yeah. along, you're like, okay, the relationship between these two guys is a friendly abuse yeah. where they call each other out by racial epithets, but they genuinely like it, each other. It's the old white guy who doesn't know how to express affection and can only do it by being, you know, this is a, and this is true really 
in the brothers as well, mm-hmm. where you know they obviously love each other, but it's the kind of thing where they can say, "I love you, man." Now go fuck yourself. Yeah, you know they can't really quite express love in anything such a in such a direct manner, and that puts them very much in that kind of Western mold. And the man of few words. And what I love about this movie is that it is both a classic Western, a classic gray Western, yeah. gray hat Western, and a very modern Western. Very modern. Yeah, it's it manages to be both those things so well, you know, like with all the surprises of a new film that really is making a commentary on the economy right now in these small rural places and then hitting all these classic notes of that whole moral uncertainty, you know? That's what I thought was appealing to me. It was like, yeah, it was a movie about the land. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like they are literally fighting over land, and we always see that theme in old westerns about who owns this land and who owns that land. In this case, this is literally all this family has mm-hmm. is this patch of dirt. As we find out, they have reasons for wanting it. But I suspect that even if those reasons weren't there, they would still fight for this because it's all that defines them. And a bank is about to take it all away. Uh, spectacular performances in this Absolutely. thing across the board. Bridges. Lawrence, again, like I said, playing a very similar character to what we've seen him play in, like, yeah. True Grit and a couple other films. This is one of my favorite versions we've seen yeah. so far of him playing this type of character. And he's the inevitable guy who's like, ah, oh, that one last job, I'm all two weeks from retiring, and he wants to go out on a big score. And you do see his, you're right about the relationship uh, with his uh, partner, who is part Comanche, part Mexican. Mm-hmm. And, you know... Even though they're not that far apart in age, they're obviously about a good 10, 20 years younger. Yeah. Uh, uh, 20 years apart. Yeah. And one thing that's really interesting about that relationship is they're always teasing, like, oh, okay, you know, you can tell that Jeff Bridges doesn't want to retire. No. He has to. He's going to, you know, they talk a lot about the porch. They talk about, like, ah, oh, what are you going to do, sit on the porch all day? This is kind of like, I want that one big job before I go out. And before long, he's going to question whether or not that was a good thing. Uh, the other interesting thing about the character of the uh, of the partner is he has a great speech about, like, yeah, you know, my people were here, and then your all's people showed up a few hundred years ago and took the land away from us, and now... You're getting that land taken away from you. Same shit's happening to you. This time, it's from those motherfuckers in the bank. You yeah. know, they don't need an army to take it away from you. What's the thing is, like, like there's so many sympathetic points of view in this yeah. thing from everybody who are definitely making, have poor decision-making skills. Sure. But you can't, there's no way you're not going to sympathize with yeah. everybody in it. And it all really leads up to one of my favorite final scenes in a movie this year, which is quiet and elegaic and just beautiful and haunting between Jeff Bridges and Chris Pine. Just a wonderful, quiet, perfect end note to this film. This is not a movie where everything's going to get wrapped up in a tidy little bow. You're not... The violence that is in the film feels real, but it's not a sort of... This is not shoot-em-up westerns. It's all a lot of fun. Everything here feels dangerous, feels real, feels lived in. And, yeah, it is It is also my pick of the week. I just, in this whole stack, I'd there was a lot what of I'd stuff. watched. But <laughs> uh, I'm glad you saved the best for the last. A few bonus features here, uh, a couple featurettes, looking at the location work, interviews, uh, you know, the red carpet p- premiere, filmmaker Q&A, host, hosted by Sam Lansky from Time. 
you know, it's standard stuff, but okay, acceptable. At least there's stuff. There's stuff. You know, but and, in a and, movie like this, the movie itself is the special. Feature. And I have a feeling this is a film that I'm going to return to quite a few times. Uh, uh, I it's, suspect it's going to age very well. I will call this definitely a new Western classic. Yeah. Well, that's it for our show. Oh, my god. Thank goodness. you so much. That was a long one, guys. Sorry about all, pretty much t- almost two hours of show, but there you go. Uh, once again, please click on those Amazon links. Buy your Christmas gifts through Amazon. Our Amazon links can't tell you how much that helps. And become a subscriber. No better time than now. Lots of new stuff happening, including regular video content. That's going to pretty much 90% of the video content is going to be exclusively for subscribers. So just so you know, you actually get to see what everybody from the site looks like. There you go. I know, so, which is a mixed blessing to be sure. And then you can pay us to, you know, to not show you that. Yeah, well, special subscriber level. Here's somebody really who not no show video. Me those <laughs> that's extra. 